VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It is Friday, December the 16th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is producing this Come On With It edition of Open Line this morning. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So, obviously, it's the final show of the week. And we do indeed have another full week of shows coming your way next week. So your time is running short to join us on the air, whether it be as a repeat caller or a first-time caller, long-time listener. The time is running short to be part of the program before the end of 2022, for us anyway, and into the holiday season. All right, speaking of the holiday season. Dave, do you happen to know what the first song was ever, that was ever heard in space? It was a tune written by James Lord Pierpont in 1857. We used to know it as One Horse Sleigh. Jingle Bells was the first song heard in space. It was broadcast during NASA's Gemini 6 spaceflight in 1965. <laughs> Jingle Bells in space. Okay. Also, interesting uh, today in history for you. It was today, December the 16th, 1773, in Boston, Massachusetts, the mercantile protest by the Sons of Liberty. This was all about the Tea Act, which happened in May of that same year, allowing the British East India Company to sell tea from China in the American colonies without paying taxes as part of those imposed by the Townshend Acts. So the Sons of Liberty, obviously quite uptight with this, they boarded one of the ships in the uh, Boston Harbor, threw chests of tea into the harbor. The British government did not take kindly to it. They considered the protest an act of treason and responded quite harshly. So with the objection to the Tea Act, Eventually, the British Parliament uh, responded in 1774 with the Intolerable Acts, or the Coercive Acts. So amongst the provisions therein, it ended local self-government in Massachusetts and closed Boston's commerce. This led up all the way to the escalation of the American Revolution War, began near Boston in 1775. Today, the Boston Tea Party, throwing chests of tea into the harbor. Okay. So I see yesterday that the city of St. John's announced that the loop, the skating loop in Bannerman Park is open. Well, certainly not weather conducive for skating and or making ice outdoors. The loop is lovely, though. It is a real beautiful addition to Bannerman Park. There was a fire at the, the canteen close by. They say they've got that just about in hand. It'll be open in days to come. In some different uh, cities that I've visited in Canada over the years, outdoor skating rinks are everywhere. Certainly in Quebec City when Jack was up there playing volleyball at Laval. And out in Alberta where I spent a lot of time, as you know. Skating rinks were really quite popular in the outdoors. But as anyone who's ever got involved in a backyard rink and or something like the Loop and or an outdoor hockey facility or skating rink, it's a labor of love. I mean, the long nights out with the hose trying to maintain a decent surface. Then, of course, here on the Avalon Peninsula with the high likelihood of these types of winter days with rain. And, of course, the rink is destroyed. There were some winters we basically got a couple of weeks worth of skating out of hundreds of hours of effort to try to put a bit of ice out in the yard for the lads. Anyway, it's going to be open from 10 to 10 a.m. to p.m. daily when the weather, of course, permits it to be. Loop is going to be closed for maintenance daily from 1 to 2. Uh, Friday to Monday will be closed from 4 to 5 as well. If you want to see if the loop is open and ready to go, it's not today. The phone number is 733-LOOP, which is 5667. The loop is open. Okay. I'm going to keep going with this. So we've brought the story and the numbers for context regarding the amount of farmland that the province has lost since 2001, almost 51%. 
The numbers again in 2001, there were 643 farms operating here in the province, now just 344 in 2021. There's something patently wrong with this. And the question was posed, and I think it's a good one by a listener via Twitter last night, was if we're looking at ways to increase food security, and the province, of course, had the want to double food security, our food production, by this year. Hard to know what kind of progress has been made on that front. But the question posed was, you know, the opportunity for greenhouses and hydroponic growth, year-round operations, what about the canopy growth facility up on the White Hills? What is the status of that? Who owns that? Is there anything going on inside? I don't think there is, but that seems like a likely place to do more and more if we're talking about growing, especially with the year-round operations. And the world of hydroponics is well understood. You know, we hear from farmers that bemoan the fact that we've lost so many farms, but farming is really, really hard, and upfront costs are quite high. But that canopy growth facility, it might be the recipe for more types of greenhouses and hydroponics throughout the entire province. I don't know why we haven't made more of an effort on that front. And if we're not going to grow our own food and we're going to go to the grocery store, Sobeys is now reporting, uh, based on their second quarter results that were announced yesterday, that the cyber attack or the cyber event, whatever went down there, is going to cost the company some $25 million net of insurance recoveries. They say it hasn't really hampered the shopping experience. I shop at Sobeys sometimes, and I haven't seen it or felt it. I know the pharmacy was down for a few days, unable to access their computers, and then they ran drive some stock and what have you. But the staff are telling people that there was indeed a ransom demanded when whoever is behind the cyber attack went in. But Sobeys also reporting they earned, well, Empire, that's the parent company, and they own a variety of different stores. Sobeys, Lawton's, Safeway, IGA, Foodland, Farm Boy Needs. They're reporting earnings of almost $190 million in the most recent quarter. That's up 8% from $175.4 million million in the same quarter last year. So while we talk about inflation and cost of living and the price of diesel and all the rest of it, earnings strong. And, of course, input costs at the grocery store chains is also way up. We know that to be true. But we'll see whether or not some of the rumbles about inflation having peaked And whether or not that's going to see any appreciable drop in the price of groceries, we'll all find out at the same time. But on that front, the price of diesel, way down overnight. You know, it's good news when we see that the PUB has dropped the price of whatever. But it's becoming really confusing for the fuel companies. It's really hard to know when to order oil or stove oils or when to gas up or when to fill up your rig with diesel. It's just like dog's belly. It's up and down. It's so unpredictable. And I'm not really sure whatever became of the uh, the issue surrounding the PUB and being more transparent. But again, as Boyd points out, just understanding the recipe doesn't make the cake taste any better. But boy, oh boy, diesel down? Okay, great. 16.3 cents across the province. At the same time, furnace oil up a lot. 13.28 cents per liter across the province. Stoving oil, stoving, stove heating oil, pardon me, is up over 13.5 cents as well. No change in gas and propane. It is time to consider, you know, negotiating an exemption for a carbon tax in particular of home heating fuels. And people wonder aloud whether or not there should ever be a tax on the necessities of life, like heating your home. But anyway, that's the numbers on that front. You want to take it on? We can do it. All right. Interesting story. And I read the blog post by Des Sullivan, of course, a.k.a. Uncle Gnarly. And it's regarding the fact that tomorrow is the 10-year anniversary of the sanctioning of Muskrat Falls. Okay. The tally at this point is some $13.5 billion, and who knows where that ends. 
And there's still some questions as to whether or not it's ever going to work. You know, the persistent problems of software-related matters on the Labrador Island link, the bloody synchronous condensers at Soldier's Pond. And Mr. Sullivan goes on to say it's time to think about abandoning the project. Now, I think most involved and most uh, people in the province would like to throw the entirety of that project right into the sun. But maybe Des has an opportunity to join us this morning, uh, if possible. I'm not really sure what that actually means, to abandon the project. So do no additional work. Stop trying to figure out the link. Forget what's going on at Soldier's Pond. But how do you leave that behind? That's the question I would have. I don't think the lenders really care if it ever produces a gig of energy. They want their money back. So that would be a complicating factor, I would assume. And then what does that mean for some of the loan guarantees that have been put in place? $5 billion from the Harper Conservatives, then the Trudeau Liberals with a backstop of another $3.9 billion, then the $5.2 billion package regarding some Hibernia assets, some $3.2 billion associated with Hibernia, then a, mil- a billion dollar loan, and another billion dollars of federal loan guarantee. What happens to all that? What about our contractual relationship and obligation to Omera for X amount of power? At the beginning of the full commissioning Muskrat Falls, some Somewhere in the neighborhood, about 22% of the power was owed to Amera, Nova Scotia Power, because of the maritime link. So, federal loan guarantees, a guarantee at TD, Goldman Sachs, or whoever, they want their money. They don't care if it generated electricity or manufactured doodads, they want to be repaid. So, I'm not really sure what abandoning the project means, or if it's even possible. I mean, there was a point where sunk cost is indeed potentially or possibly a fallacy, but at this stage, can it even be done? Mr. Sullivan goes on to suggest that when Dwight Ball and the Liberals took power in 2016, they should have been more wary and maybe considered and talked about walking away from the project at that point. But is it even possible? It has certainly been, you know, the word that's been used wide and far has been debacle, and it's hard to argue with that. And, you know, even Hydro, they remain optimistic in their commentary regarding rectifying these problems, but at the exact same time, $522 million to create an eighth generating unit beta spare. We know you can make that a billion dollars with the ongoing need for Holyrood and maybe some upgrades and updated uh, approach taken to that thermal generating station. But 10-year anniversary of old Muskrat Falls is tomorrow. Ugh. Anyway, if you have any thoughts on that one, that's a complicated one. I totally get it. Mr. Sullivan would be great to have him on, see if he can further elaborate on what exactly abandoning looks like what the implications are. All right, take a quick look over at Memorial University. So there's a potential job action. The faculty association, the talks have broke down. They had conciliator in, but they've reached an impasse, and so now they're able to take a strike vote on December the 29th, or to be locked out. So mostly regarding some of the contract the teacher positions, you know, four to eight months, and they've got to go back to the well every single time when it expires, and or salaries in general. Apparently, Memorial University is the only institution in the country that doesn't have faculty members sitting on the Board of Regents. So they've got a democratic governance issue on top of some salary-related matters. So how that will impact students, I don't really know. And I even heard a couple of the interviews and still not quite sure what that means. I've got a university student at home. So on top of that, and for many people, this is probably even as big or bigger a deal. The relationship that the province has, an emotional relationship with the Ode to Newfoundland, is very real. And I'm one of them. I really do appreciate the Ode to Newfoundland. Uh, Certainly some of the sporting events and sports settings involving me and my children and our families and friends. The Ode was a big part of it. So you know the deal here. 
between uh, President Fianne Simmons, uh, Timmons, pardon me, and seven vice presidents earlier this year, in a unanimous vote, decided to scrap the Ode to Newfoundland being sung at convocation ceremonies. And they've been singing that since the 1950s. So you've all heard the deal, right? Is that there were some concerns about inclusivity. No reference to Labrador. And then it goes on to say, you know, references to God. And as loved our fathers, so we love. Those are some of the areas of concern. So at a Senate meeting yesterday, and apparently became fairly contentious, about revisiting the decision. You know, is it as simple as just adding the word Labrador to the end of it? Or do we really absolutely need to talk about the word God and fathers and things? You know, when we're including things, including seems like a strange way to uh, remove something and talk about inclusivity. There's a distinct contradiction inside. So there was a motion brought forward by an art history professor named uh, Gerard Curtis. He proposed change in the anthem at the province's behest. Okay. Rejigging the lyrics is one thing, but some of the opposing opposition or some of the opposition points are really fairly important too. This one comes from Associate Professor Ken Snellgrove. He says, "I think we should pay great heed to this." And this is a request by the provincial government to see it reinstated. He said, "These are the people that write the checks to memorial. I think it's important to weigh the balance here: the importance of dropping the ode from the convocation ceremony compared to the potential potential harm to the university as a result of going against the wishes of the people of the province." Then, of course, people who are on the other side of the coin, uh, Catherine Anderson, she's the indigenous vice president, she supported the motion, saying the Ode to Newfoundland often held negative connotations for people in Labrador. Is there a way to figure this out? You know, this goes down that path of concern that many people have expressed over the years. Hauling down statues, removing certain names from certain buildings or schools or universities or what have you. But the Ode to Newfoundland never really felt like a contentious issue, but it's easy enough for me to say. I'm not from Labrador, so I never felt that ex- exclusion that some people might. But is there a way to figure that out? Because the emotional reaction to that was palpable when they absolutely brought forward that odd decision some months back. Okay, another anniversary to consider. And this one, well, it's not this precise anniversary. It was a couple of days ago. I had never heard this story before, ever. It's what happened on Quebec Air Flight 321 on the 14th of December of 1972 at Wabush Airport. And the story is told by a lady named Josette Dizong, I think is how you pronounce it. If I mispronounce that, I apologize. So she was uh, an attendant on that particular flight at Wabush Airport on that fateful day. Some, so this young fella comes onto the plane holding a 22 rifle. Now, it didn't shock to see a rifle because they generally had been shuttling travelers and hunters around. But this guy gets on and refuses to sit down and buckle up. He proceeds to point the rifle right at the uh, Josette's head for 10 hours. He demanded a direct flight to Vancouver. So he was quite agitated and restless and pointing the gun directly at this lady and barking orders at them. So they were able to take the first step of the flight into Montreal. It was the closest the flight could get to Vancouver before it had to refuel. Something happened with the gentleman, and his name is Larry Maxwell Stanford. He needed some time to think. So apparently, he figured out that he could benefit from psychotherapy and asked the officials of the airline to fly his father from Churchill Falls as well as a doctor. He surrendered the gun to the senior stewardess, gave the bullets. He had a handful of bullets, so says Mr. Song. 
So he was diagnosed as having antisocial personality disorder, sentenced to 20 years for the hijacking, went on to have a very violent life after that, uh, threatened to kill his sister upon release in 1983, struck her 20 times in the head with a hammer. Then he was sentenced in 2019 to another nine years for a sexual assault. So Larry Maxwell Stanford hijacked a flight, Quebec Air Flight 321, at Wabush Airport 50 years ago. David, you ever heard that story before? Never. So really quite something. Anyway, how are we doing on the telephone, Dave? we got to get her going. Going to need the listeners to be the callers today. Good news with the fact that the Canadian Mental Health Association decided to stop their justice program, which was extremely successful. They, the people that they've counseled over 10 years, some 122 or, or 112 of them, 67% never reoffended, were never reincarcerated. It became a distinct worry. Now the good folks at the John Howard Society are going to take it on for the remainder of the fiscal year for the 10 men who are currently enrolled in the program. So we know how important all of those supports for reintegration into society. Add to it then the Auditor General's report about the gaps, the glaring gaps in oversight upon release, whether it be monitoring court-ordered rules that are in place and what have you. But this is good, and I'm really glad Cindy Murphy and her team were able to take this on. And hopefully with funding coming from the Justice Department, it remains in place for years to come. It's a public safety issue. It quite simply is. If two-thirds of the people who have complex mental health needs don't have case managers that greet them at the gate and have ongoing counseling, what's the likelihood that those two-thirds that did not reoffend, how many of them would reoffend if they didn't have this type of support? And, of course, the reoffending could mean you in physical jeopardy, your store being robbed, your shed broke into, your home invaded, who knows what it might look like. So these particular programs are crucial. So I'm really pleased that they're able to do that at the John Howard Society. All right, very quickly. So we've talked about porch pirates and, you know, the couriers will drop off a package and the nuisances are patrolling your neighborhood and then they pinch the package and off they go, the porch pirate. There's some transportation delays at Canada Post, uh, apparently. And this is from more than one listener via email. And they say, and point out the fact that you can get a parcel from Vancouver to St. John's in five days. And now it's taken nine days and counting from St. John's because apparently there's a transportation delay. They got the notification on the 6th of December that the package is there, but it's still showing as delayed. So what's actually happening, and are you experiencing that? You know, people start to get nervous at this time of year when the something that you ordered, and whether coming from Amazon or you expect it to be dropped off by UPS or at Canada Post, people start to get antsy because it's only a week from now that Christmas is upon us. So anyway, that's out there for your consideration. As is every other issue under the sun, we are on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That can only happen with your call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. As mentioned off the top of the show, tomorrow marks the 10th anniversary of the sanctioning of Muskrat Falls. Lots of people have been following the project since day one, even some of the pre-project consultations. One such fellow joins us online, number two. He's Uncle Gnarly, better known as Des Sullivan. And good morning, Good morning, Des. You're on the air. Good morning, Paddy, and uh, Columns of the Season to you. I have a very best to you, sir. Thank you very much for making time for us this morning. Not at all. So, like I also said, you know, many people in the province would be more than happy to fire the entirety of the Muskrat Falls, Muskrat Falls project directly into the sun. But yep. when you talk about abandoning the project, what does that actually mean? Well, for me... Uh, I, I think that at the 10th anniversary and of, of construction, 
And as we, uh, if, if someone was really doing an independent audit of the numbers based upon uh, the original assumptions, they'd be closer to 15 billion than 13 point something or other. Uh, so we, we have a project here with a lot of warts, Patty. It's uh, basically, it ain't working. And that's a very sad outcome after spending that kind of money in a very small province that has no ability to pay uh, for something that uh, it, that essentially can't generate revenue except via debt or via federal handouts or similar patterns. Uh, we can, we we we're too small. We have, a, we have a small economy. If you were Ontario uh, or British Columbia, you could, yeah, sure. Uh, a, a place like that could sustain uh, a, a, a $12 or $15 billion loss. Newfoundland cannot, and all the camouflages, uh, that kind of uh, uh, expenditure up to now is political rhetoric. Now, what I want to say about uh, uh, about Muskrat Falls at this juncture is that is number one that the 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 project has severe problems. You've got problems on the LIL, the Labrador Island Link. Uh, you've got problems with the software. You've got problems with the synchronous condensers at Soldiers Pond that are essential to providing grid stability. Uh, you've got problems at Muskrat Falls itself with the Chinese uh, constructed uh, turbines. So. These, none of these are small problems. Right? That, that, that's, that's, if this were a matter of difficulties, uh, normal difficulties in commissioning, we wouldn't be talking about this. We wouldn't be having this conversation. I, any, anyone understands that on a, a major project like this, you're going to have normal checklist commissioning issues. Those are not normal checklist commissioning issues. Okay, and and I think we got we as a province need to get our heads around this. The second thing, the second big point that I would make is that governments typically don't have that capacity to call call it when we've just spent too much. There's a tendency because of the the, the politics of it all that having spent uh, $15 billion, that, oh, God, we can't shut down the LIL because uh, we've, we've spent all this money now, so we have, to, we have to keep on investing to fix. Well, I'm sorry, business does not work that way, and neither should, in this case, a province work that way. Okay, we, we, we should be concerned as a society that, our, that, that, that money that ought to go to health care or education or some other will end up doing interminable fixes on the LIL or some other aspect of a terribly uh, poorly constructed, misguided project. That's, that's where I'm coming from on this. Okay, and uh, I think everyone would agree that the problems are still massive and the costs associated with rectifying them are unknown. And so uh, whether we're at 13.3 or 13.5 billion dollars, the, the issues that you point out are obviously very, very real. But in practical terms, like I said off the top, just from where I sit, I don't think the lenders care. 
one way or the other. They don't care if you ever uh, generate a gig of power because for them, it could be manufacturing doodads or creating electricity. They need to get paid. So how do we calculate that in? And then further to that, what does that mean for the complications regarding the contractual obligations with AMERA and the federal loan guarantees that have been put in place? All of those would probably go by the wayside because they were earmarked for very specific purposes. It wasn't borrowing for borrowing's sake. It was borrowing specifically for this project. How do we factor that in? Well, I mean, these, these are going to end up being very real economic and legal issues. The, we, but you can't – the first thing I would say <clears throat> is that you can't deal with it by spending yourself even further into oblivion. That is the real problem here, that no government will want to take that leadership to say – we are prepared to spend X to get this thing working. Once we get to that point, this deal's off. We are taking a different course. And the fact is that we have no choice. We, we can't simply keep on spending money, and I'll say this in one other context so that people can connect, can connect the dots here. There's not just the issue – of whether we should spend more money to do all these fixes. We have to remember that the rate mitigation scheme that's been put in place for the money already spent is really a mirage. It is, it is monies uh, in part that have a very finite end to their use. In other words, one, for instance, one of the billions that was uh, that was uh, uh, taken down within the last couple of years as part of rate mitigation, probably just last year, basically got less than six and a half years to go because the, the province was only allowed to draw down uh, a maximum of $150 million a year. Well, when that runs out, I mean, the math is not very difficult. You know, you've got six and a half years. Uh, when six and a half years runs from the first drawdown, well, you've got – You've got another $150 million just in that case to find. So rate mitigation is, is one of those really contrived kinds of equations that, that is going to look great and smell great until it doesn't. And, and, and so we're, we're talking about a compounding issue here. And, I, and, Patty, I hate like hell trying to describe it this way because uh, you – because I, I, I'm sure that I always sound like the naysayer that I've been accused of for, for, for 10 years. But I'll, I'll get over that. I, I want the public to understand that I'm not having this conversation just because I'm a negative guy. In fact, I'm probably one of the most positive guys around, anyone who knows me. But I'm a realist. I know that Newfoundland can't... Uh, sustain the kinds of monies that an unproductive Muskrat Falls is going to impose on us as the thing unfolds. It can't do it, and it's going to need leadership, and that leadership is going to have to come fairly soon. And if we continue to spend money essentially running Holyrood, right, Part of which is going to Nova Scotia. Some someone should really do the math on that. 
then uh, in order to satisfy our obligations under the Nova Scotia Bloc, man, we're in for some serious, serious problems. Someone has to tackle this. They've got to stop putting political spin on it. They've got to lay out uh, we, what we are prepared to do, how, how much longer we're prepared to spend money to fix this before calling it in and saying, okay, we have to sit down with, with Ottawa, we've got to sit down with Nova Scotia and bring an end to it. And if we have to leave this power in Labrador and have it uh, sold up through uh, Churchill Falls or have other local consumption, electricity uh, occur, whether it's crypto or otherwise in Labrador, so be it. But we can't afford to continue spending money trying to rejig a Labrador Island link that was never properly designed. Uh, we can't keep spending money on, uh, on, on software and so on that simply will not come forward. We've, we've uh, where we're, uh, I think, basically, we, if, if, the, if the numbers were known, we, we would probably uh, uh, have generated, uh, I forget the number now, probably no more than 20% of capacity or something this year uh, from, from Churchill Falls. So let's, let's, let's stop kidding ourselves. You know, yeah. we have to deal with this. No matter what, America is going to want their pound of flesh here because they've spent on time, on budget, $1.5-ish billion on the Maritime Link. We owe them, my recollection is, about 22% of the maximum output of 824 megawatts, even though that's never going to be achieved, even if everything works perfectly. So they're going to want their power and or some fiscal or financial compensation for is the likely outcome here, and nobody likes to hear this, but the justifications basically for the project were Quebec, and uh, Holyrood. Now, Holyrood's not going anywhere anytime soon. Does this eventually see power flowing north and west and a sit-down required with Hydro-Quebec? I mean, nobody in this problem wants to hear that because Quebec has long been the boogeyman. But if it's not going to be able to flow south and east, then it's got to flow somewhere if it's ever going to generate any electricity to try to recoup some of these billions of dollars. Well, you know, the, the, the recouping of billions of dollars implies in part that we can uh we can uh fix the lil which i am becoming uh, far more doubtful of i i th- you see i view this a little differently I, I i think there's a heck of a lot of capital here that simply has to be written off yeah now my my suggestion des was if the labrador island link is never going to work and there's no reason to believe it is going to work at this moment in time. The maximum they tried to flow over the line was 700 megawatts, immediately got tripped, so it's not working. So that's, that was my question about, you know, there's already a connection between Churchill Falls and the rest of this province, so is it likely home for some power to avoid transmission over the link just to go north and to be sold through Hydro-Quebec to whoever their end customer might be? That's all I meant. But let's but let's remember, Patty. Even if you're even if you're able to do that, what you're netting per kilowatt hour is pretty small change. Okay, uh, there there was a point uh, I think in the last quarter uh, where uh, where Nalcor actually recorded something close to eight cents uh, a kilowatt hour for uh, on the spot market for a short while. But that's that's a that's an aberration. That's a great rarity. Uh, traditionally, what uh, what uh, Hydro or Nalcor has been able to achieve uh, on a net basis is one to two cents a kilowatt hour. Keep in mind, 
that the economics of Muskrat had all to do with the kind of money that we were that we were spending on thermal energy at, at Holyrood. So so once you talk about sending uh, power uh, through Quebec, we 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 may we may be we're talking about a completely different uh, economic circumstance or economic paradigm. You're you're not generating the kind of uh, revenue necessary to deal with 13 and a half or 15 billion dollars. So so the conversation has to start off with being an economic and a legal one. That's 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 the point. You can talk about power all you want, but but you don't forget don't forget the assumptions that were uh, that were made in 2012 which not only meant which not only implied by the way and this is very important not only implied uh, that Holyrood would close it, it also assumed that we would have continuous increase in demand over time and that accelerating demand was going to be at rates at, at current rates to to Newfoundland consumers. Well, that demand, don't forget that that whole demand scenario was contrived, and uh, and demand has been essentially flat mm-hmm. to 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 declining since 2012. So that accelerating demand is not there either. So so we can we can talk about various things, but fundamentally. This is a, 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 a an economic issue because you you cannot see, except in in some strange context where you're getting really high uh, rates out of the out of the Newfoundland Island consumer, uh, where the, where the capital can be can be repaid. Uh, so, so there's 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 an abundance of issues here, uh, in, including I agree with you that that the Nova Scotia issue is important. We have legal obligations, but you know something, we may have to uh, we may have to negotiate the cancellation of those. Yeah, we've been actually so, selling power to Nova Scotia and buying power from Nova Scotia through mm-hmm. the Maritime Link. Just before I run out of time, Des, and not to further complicate a complex set of circumstances here, but. I wonder how the committee looking into 2041 gets factored into these eventual decisions. I wonder what the concept of the Atlantic Loop, if it ever comes to pass, even though it was just a liberal marketing scheme as much as anything else at this moment in time, I wonder how those two things and Gull or whatever factors into a decision surrounding Muskrat, because they're all going to play a role. I'm really curious to hear what the 2041 committee reports back, because I think people view that date as the golden egg, when I'm I'm not so sure it is that. So I wonder how all those things factor into how we proceed with this particular project on the Churchill. Yeah, well, I, number one, I, I don't see Gull as most people see it. Most people still think that Gull is an economic venture, uh, and uh, and it's only a matter of time. Before. I have no idea. Uh, and 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 I think personally, uh, it is entirely my view. But uh, I think that's nonsense. If the Feds want uh, for uh, the purposes of a greener environment want to throw in uh, six or seven billion dollars uh, of free money to make Gull Island work, so be it. Uh, I, I don't think Gull is going to be economic on any other basis. That's okay. my view. That's, okay, that's num- number one. That's num- now, number two is that I have a real problem with tying 
uh, the upper Churchill 2041 uh, into muskrat. I, I do not like that relationship at all uh, because uh, we are going to be under a substantial gun in 2041 uh, under any circumstance. Uh, we're going to have to be very tough. I'm, uh, I'm not seeing – well, there, there's nothing – nothing has come out in terms of what the 20, 2041 uh, committee has uh, considered, achieved, whether, it's, uh, whether it, it's looking at specific options or not. Uh, we, we, that's black hole to the public, including me. And, uh, but nevertheless, from a, from a broader perspective – I don't want to tie 2041 to Muskrat Falls. That has to be its own conversation, and uh, we have to be very careful of politicians who will try and make those linkages, because I'll guarantee you, Patty, uh, if we think, if we had hoped one day to get some return on our investment in, in Churchill Falls, it, it, will, it will die on the Muskrat Falls vine, it, it simply will. There's too. There's so much money uh, sunk uh, into a bad project, uh, one that should ought, that ought never to have been built in terms of muskrat. Uh, for us to throw uh, the Upper Churchill at it as some some kind of solution, uh, if you want to see the little bit of equity that the province has got left in its resources, in its hydro resources, be wiped out then you just hang on to your hat because that's, that's how that's going to come down. We're going to have very little leverage in 2041 except our determination to, to uh, not allow ourselves to be taken advantage of. And if we have weak politicians trying to solve a different political problem in terms of muskrat, then, brother, I'll tell you, we are going to lose both wars. Yeah, I, and I don't know if solve is the word I would use. Maybe more like salvage. Uh, I, I'm really out of time, unfortunately, but Liberty Consulting in their 17th quarterly report are a bit more optimistic about the Labrador Island link uh, and the most recent testing. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, so I won't go down that path here this morning, but maybe we can revisit that in the days or weeks to come. Appreciate the time this morning. I wish you a happy holidays. Merry Christmas, Des, to you and yours. And all, all the best to you and yours and your public. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All the best. Bye now. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we go back, Charlie's there to talk about what was a unbelievably weird offering coming from the former president yesterday. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Charlie, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I don't know if you're as lucky as we are. Uh, about an hour ago, the sun came out. Ah, uh, no, it's pitch black here, <laughs> Tom. Okay. I, I'm starting to disbelieve. And I thought it might not be up there anymore. But anyway, uh, I was expecting yes, uh, yesterday or the day before, uh, 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 Mr. Trump said he was going to make a major announcement. So I kind of tune in because he, he's going to be the, the uh, Republican candidate, it looks like, for president again. I'd be shocked. And, uh, I thought it would it would be that he's going to have Marjorie Taylor Greene as his vice president. Now, that would have been a shocker. As you know, she's the QAnon nut that uh, has got all kinds of power in, in that party right now. But it wasn't that at all. What it was, as you know, 
he's got a, a card set out featuring himself in in different uh, garbs. He's, he's he's Superman. He's uh, a cowboy. He's all these different things, and he wants ninety nine dollars a set. This would be a great Christmas gift. You got yours bought or, or ordered? Now I, I imagine. I, I've got all that stuff tuned up. By to be honest. Well, you can tune him out totally because he is he is still a factor there, as you know. But anyway, can you believe that a man... Uh, uh, he said one time he loved uneducated people. And, and I, I thought, yes, he does, because he can, he can grift them, he can get money from them. But when he came out with this, this has got to be an all-time low in, 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 in uh, anything that I've ever seen in my life. I can't, I just couldn't believe it. it, it, it the, I suppose for, from, from the humorous point of view, uh, uh, you can look at it as a good laugh. But uh, anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that because I want to talk about propaganda, right? Yeah, okay. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's certainly still on the political scene, although I think some of his supporters of years gone by are starting to abandon him as well. But when I saw that story yesterday, I've been like, oh, my God, what is this? You know, it's it's really pathetic. He must think that the people who do support him are absolute suckers if they're going to buy this stuff. You know, it's just a that $99 NFT trading card would be absolutely worthless in years to come. So I don't know, boys. It's, it's remarkable stuff. Well, it's disrespectful for, for people who follow him. Uh, uh, totally, to, 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 to believe that, that that's stupid to, uh, you know. But I was watching the CBC clip on, 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 on Putin and, and, and uh, the, what the Russians are saying behind the scenes. Now, I believe that the war would end with uh, uh, Putin losing so much support in Russia that uh, they would eventually uh, kick the guy out. I couldn't see the Russian people uh, uh, supporting uh, such a thing. After seeing the CBC clip, I, I, I'm not sure that's the case. The power of, of propaganda, and especially if you've only got one station to, to listen to, they were interviewing people who are basically saying, this is in rural parts of Russia, that, that the war is great, that, that uh, the Soviet Union was in danger of being invaded by, by uh, 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 Ukraine, that there was a Nazi regime there, that uh, those people, those young Russians that are trying to avoid the war are dogs, running dogs. And um, even even the uh, bishop of the, I think he's the bishop or archbishop or whatever of the Orthodox Church, he even supports Putin. And of course, that church uh, has got a lot of members, again, especially in rural Russia, that uh, his message uh, means a lot. He's, Putin is even equating this with uh, 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 things in the Bible, a Jesus Christ type thing. So it gets it gets crazier and crazier. And and if he's got that kind of support, this war is not going to end soon. But uh, the fact he can he can get away with that in, in in this day and age and have people believe such stuff is just amazing. Well, it depends what you're spoon-fed, right? You know, it's even hard in this part of the world to know exactly what to believe uh, coming out of the Ukraine. It really is quite difficult. But, of course, if you're living in Russia, you have been told one side of the story and one side only, and it's been very carefully crafted for their ears and minds and, I guess, their hearts. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the ultimate uh, point for me is I just don't know how and where this ends, and I'm not so sure anybody does. But, uh, Charlie, I appreciate the time this morning. Uh, go click and buy your trading cards, no? I'd like to have one, one, one more comment, uh, one more short one on, on, on a second. Very story. quickly. Uh, 
when when the 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 black lady Griner was uh, uh, put in jail in Russia for uh, having possession of some uh, minor drug, I'll call it. She was given nine years, and everybody was saying, "Isn't that terrible that they would they would uh, sentence her for, for that long for such a small thing?" I heard a case in Mississippi: a black guy for possession, not for selling, was put in jail for life. He appealed to the Mississippi Supreme Court uh, on the basis of this being cruel and unusual punishment, and they ruled against him. So when we look at what's happening in Russia and we look at what's happening in some places in the southern states, especially with uh, 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 minorities, that being an example, you have to wonder if this world is not insane. But anyway, I'll leave it at that. Appreciate the time, Charlie. Thank you, sir. Okay, thank Take you. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, another one before we get to the break. Let's go to Paradise Lions Club. Good morning, Chess Pike. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thanks for taking, taking my call. No problem. Uh, just want to uh, let the, um, the residents of Paradise and the uh, surrounding area know that tomorrow uh, at the Double Ice Complex from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., We'll be holding a food drive there in support of our uh, of our food bank here in Paradise. And uh, as I say, it's going to be at Double Ice Complex. It's a uh, drive-through drop-off, and uh, it's badly needed. And and hopefully the uh, the residents can come out and um, and help us. And when I say us, we uh, uh, we got together with. Uh, the Paradise King Club and minor hockey and scouts and the town of Paradise and uh, we said, you know, we got to try and do something for our for our food bank here, which is in terrible need to get the shelves restocked and uh, and do what do what they can. They have uh, they're overloaded and um, can hardly keep up with the demand. I read the stories every single day, whether it be yeah. that food bank or St. Vincent de Paul or Bridges to Hope or yeah. Salvation Army. It's mind-bending just it, how it, bad it is out there. Uh, Chess, do you guys have any freezer capacity, for instance, if someone wanted to bring in a turkey or stuff like that? Because the non-perishable is most welcome, whether it be pasta or tins of beans or whatever the case may be. But some people, and they've asked me, do you know if this organization or another has freezer capacity? Because they were going to donate a turkey. So w- what about that? Yeah, no, uh, we don't have any any uh, freezing capacity capacity as such, but if uh, if uh, somebody do want to donate a uh, uh, a turkey or anything like like that, they can they can certainly give us a call at seven two five five nine four five, and we'll certainly pick it up and uh, and have it delivered. But um, as as I say, yeah, the the food banks are really really hurting, and we know that the. Uh, the residents of uh, of Paradise, St. John's, all over the province has uh, has been doing their best to help out and uh, and and do what they can. But uh, we're asking now that that tomorrow, if you just give another shot and help us to uh, help the food bank here, then we certainly would uh, be greatly appreciated. Uh, and as I said, that's uh, that's tomorrow, Saturday, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Double Ice Complex. Hopefully it's a roaring success, Chess. Uh, we know that food bank use in the province is up 27% yeah. 27% this year alone. Yeah, It's uh, astounding and it's really troubling. I appreciate the good work that the Lions Club is doing out in Paradise and hopefully you get a lot of donations tomorrow. Hopefully, hopefully too, Patty. And I'd just like to say uh, one other thing. I'd just like to pass along a big thank you to uh, Bob LeDrew, Bob LeDrew Trucking, who've, uh, who've uh, graciously... Uh, 
donated one of his trucks to be there to accept the food for us and uh, and get it back to the food bank when we're uh, when when we're available. Thanks for this, Chess. Thanks very much, Patty, and a Merry Christmas to uh, you, your listeners, and uh, I hope uh, hope everything is great for the new year. Uh, the very same to you and your family, and of course your fellow Lions. Good talking to you, Chess. Merry Christmas. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. That's Chess Pike from the Paradise Lions Club. Okay. So apparently police are investigating some more shots fired in the community of CBS, and that happened on Tuesday. Not a whole lot of information floating around, but I imagine it's pretty unsettling for the community because this is not the first time in the recent past. The mayor of CBS is Darren Bent. He's in the queue right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, simply because of the time, I don't want to shortchange Mayor Bent out in the community of CBS, but I'm sure, well, hopefully he has a bit more information to offer about what he knows, what the RNC are telling him, and what the mood in the community is. But we'll get to the mayor after the break, and thankfully he has the patience to stick with us. There is a story out there today that is getting a little bit of traction, and that's the fact that now the federal government is now mandating that the public servants return to the office at least two to three days per week starting in March of next year. We do know that the government hired on a ton of people over the last couple of years, and some of the contracts explicitly say that you'll be able to work from home. So it's been applauded wide and far. The delay and the wait times for government services has been extremely frustrating on a variety of fronts. Just say, take, for instance, uh, a passport. But the question has to be, Will there be better productivity back in the office? Are they not meeting their obligations as employees working from home? Now, the union, PSAC, is fighting back tooth and nail with this one. They say the rank and file are furious. But I would imagine the vast majority of Canadians not working in the public service think it's about time to get back in the office. But the ultimate question will and should be, what's the productivity issue today if they're being unproductive, if we simply have too many people working at the federal government in the public service? Let's make that the start point of conversation versus where they work is how they work and what's being done or what's not getting done. Anyway, that's an interesting one. And there's still people that we all know that are working from home and are never going back to the office. I got a buddy of mine who was an accountant. He's had his best two years in history working from home. He feels better. He's saving money on his commute. And, of course, the company is saving because they've reduced their footprint with the commercial real estate. So it's an interesting thought about how and where people are working because that has changed forever. Okay, let's take a break for that newscast. When we come back, CBS Mayor Darren Bent is in the queue, and then it's you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two, say good morning to his worship, the mayor of CBS. That's Darren Bent. Mayor Bent, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad at all. How about you? <laughs> I'm pretty good. Uh, as uh, Brian noted, all that junk uh, has not moved off of CBS yet. It's still pretty uh, dark and drizzly out here as well. Yeah, well, certainly I can barely see Kemal Terrace through the windows here at the VOCM, the uh, big number one. So, yeah, not great. It's been a long couple of sucked-in weeks. Let's move off to what's happening in your community. What do we know about what happened on Tuesday? Well, first of all, uh, Patty, let me let me uh, speak about the, uh, the the mood of the community and uh, the concerns that are here, and move into that. Um, you know, when the incident happened uh, this past week on Tuesday, uh, that was the third incident in our community since September uh, that involved firearms. And we have a number of concerned residents. And, of course, they have a right to be concerned, and uh, you'd expect them to be. And because this is not activity that we expect, and it's not activity that we absolutely don't want in our town. You know, and uh, if we, we, you know, we believe that resident safety and 
staff safety are paramount for uh, uh, for our community. Since this latest incident this week, uh, I've had the opportunity to speak uh, directly to the RNC's Deputy Chief Stephanie Legacy about what's been going on. Um, you know, and and I know that they've said to you and uh, and uh, uh, other media that uh, that this incident uh, and, and all these incidents were targeted. Uh, that they're isolated, you know, and uh, and and that's that's great because it means that there's no ongoing danger to residents in our community. But of course, uh, you know, when I expressed this and I and I and I spoke with the deputy chief uh, that that doesn't necessarily calm the fears, especially of those who live near the incidents. Um, the RNC have assured me that they have put extra resources on this situation that they want. Residents to know that they're doing everything possible uh, to bring this to a close. And of course, uh, Patty, as you know, as a municipality, we play no active role in the investigation. Our role is that of support. Uh, you know, so we uh, would offer, and I've, I've told the deputy chief that uh, if they need anything from us, from a resources standpoint or communication support, we are at the ready. And we're willing to help in any way possible. And uh, we're very pleased and proud that we have an RNC headquarters right here in CBS that they can use as a as a headquarters uh, to uh, back up their resources on the scene of anything that may happen here. And uh, we have with the RNC. Um, from a also from a municipal point, if there are any concerns that residents have about any dwellings. That may have been involved or or uh, areas of concern we will look at our bylaws and make sure that, that if there's anything that we do or or look at that may help the situation that we will do that through the lens of our bylaws and there may be something that our enforcement can investigate as well you know it's the mood of the community that i assume would be the number one concern and their fears allayed by whether it be enhanced police presence because Certainly, these people are known to police. Now, there's very few in the way of details coming out about the specifics about this week's occurrence, but before long, you're going to hear and see residents that are going to be afraid to be out walking around with their kids or in the spring out on their bikes and what have you. So this is a fear. Like, I mean, for instance, back when we were all told to shelter in place or some while back, it was extended beyond CBS. So these types of gun-related worries are becoming more and more real for so many people are here in the Northeast Avalon. That's the thing, Patty. You know, the Northeast Avalon has grown. It's not 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Uh, it's different now. We've all grown together. We're, we're closer. We're more intertwined than we used to be. CBS is not a community out there. It's It all grows together into Paradise, Mount Pearl, St. John's, and so forth. And, you know, uh, with that growth, uh, I think we all know the problems of growth as well. And uh, it's not just conception-based cells. And I want to be clear, you know, we're, we're now seeing some of the problems uh, uh, over the past three months that our neighboring communities have been dealing with for some time. Yep. So uh, we're not isolated in that. Um, and, uh, and look, people have a right to be concerned, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm concerned with them. But uh, I, I can say that uh, after speaking to the deputy chief and uh, hearing uh, uh, their commitment uh, to this investigation and ongoing investigations. And, of course, you know, uh, uh, Patty, as well as I do, the police uh, don't tell you very much because they've got a lot on the go. 
and uh, there are things happening that we don't know about. Uh, and then next thing you know, there's been an arrest or a seizures and so forth. And, uh, and that's perfectly good. That's what they're there for. And as a municipality, we will support them in any way possible. But I want to touch on one other thing that uh, I think is very important and key to this as well. Uh, in speaking with the deputy chief and uh, that, you know, uh, the residents here uh, have a role to play as well. And, and it's a big one. Uh, and it's this. And, and they've, they've called on it, and I've heard it on VOCM uh, on the news, that anyone who notices any suspicious activity, anyone who may have been in the area, and I don't mean like just next door, I mean in the general vicinity, you know, a street or two away that have seen something, because we're dealing, uh, this incident uh, this past week, there's somebody got a, left in a car that they're looking for, you know. So they may have dro- drove by, they may have come to a stop sign near your your residence. And if you have uh, any dash cam video, any uh, home surveillance video, uh, you know, uh, that may be helpful. Have a look at it. Um, uh, reach out to police if you see anything suspicious. And also keep in mind that, you know, when, when you look at a video, uh, the police look at things through a different lens. And uh, they may see something that's significant that you might not see. So if you think you have anything of, of any help, please reach out. And, of course, I want to stress this, Patty, because of these types of incidents and uh, resident safety is absolutely a concern and privacy is a concern, is that if you don't want your identity known, if you want to do this and help in a way where you're not going to be attached to it, uh, the police have Crime Stoppers set up. And uh, we've all seen the, the, the great things that have happened through Crime Stoppers over the years. And they can do that. They have ways of doing that. So your identity is protected. And I think when you're dealing with incidents like this, Patty, that's very important. And uh, uh, 729-229, the Crime Stoppers number. So I would encourage anyone that thinks they may be able to help in any way to please come forward and do so. Because, uh, you know, it's, it's these these situations, we're all in it together. And any help that we can give the RNC is uh, is, uh, is, is greatly appreciated. And, and aside from the residents, Patty, there's a deeper concern. Uh, as well as it's not it's not a it's not that it's a bigger concern but it, it goes deeper we have concerns for our own staff and you know members of our uh, cbs fire department are sometimes the first responders on a scene of an incident and of course once they're they determine there's a possible threat to their, to their safety or ongoing uh developing incident that poses a danger they have protocols to follow and uh, you know, they bring this to the attention of the RNC and the RNC get involved and take over the scene. And the, the incident that happened uh, 10 days ago, uh, I believe out in the Pettens Road area, uh, they were the first ones there. Uh, and because it came in as a medical call, they were dispatched. They had paramedic training to, uh, to uh, help in these situations. And once on the scene, it's quickly determined it was a firearm involved. And uh, they went into their protective safety protocols and the RNC were alerted and, uh, you know, they, uh, they, uh, over the scene. So, you know, it, it, we have staff that, you know, you know, so them show up to, uh, uh, situations. And of course, once they get there, they, they've been finding, uh, these sorts of situations and, uh, they have to look out for their own safety. And thankfully the protocols are in place for them to do that, you know, so, and, and, you know, and, and the deputy chief, you know, uh, assured us that, uh, that uh, they're in close contact with uh, our uh, our uh, fire department and 
and they work together when it comes to uh, scene management and so forth. I appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Benton. Hopefully, the RNC are able to get a handle on this, but I'm, I would imagine Crime Stoppers will be the go-to avenue that residents will take for fear of retribution. So if you see something, say something. I appreciate this. Uh, stay in touch and wish you and your family and your residents Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Now, Patty, if I could pray on your good nature just for a moment. I just have a couple other things. I wanted to end on a positive note if I could. <laughs> but uh, I just wanted to let the uh, residents that uh, our budget 2023 is going to uh, come down on Tuesday evening at 6 p.m. It'll be on the, our YouTube channel, and folks can watch it there. And, of course, uh, we'll deal with it in chambers uh, uh, just afterwards. But uh, on, a, on, a, on a positive note, Patty, the um, – our lighted walk in CBS, which is extremely popular at Manuel's River, uh, is lit. Uh, it's open and ready to go for people to enjoy that. It will be right through to January 6th, and we encourage anyone to take a day trip out to Conception Bay South. Uh, just as it gets dark, the lights come on. It's a fantastic, uh, enjoyable evening, and uh, spend some time in CBS and uh, enjoy yourselves. Sounds great to me. I've been out there. It's a magical opportunity, and folks should take advantage of it. Good to have you on, Mayor Ben. Stay in touch. Thanks, Patty. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, so Labrador has a storied 120-year cinematic history. Mark Turner and Morgan Mills are the co-authors of Labrador Cinema. They've actually curated a collection of 88 rare historical photographs and enlargements from film and video, many of which have never been seen or published before. Mark Turner and Morgan Mills, right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Join us on lines number four and five are the co-authors of Labrador Cinema. That's Mark Turner and Morgan Mills. Good morning to you both. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Uh, doing great. Thanks for asking. How about both of you? No, no complaints. Okay, Morgan, I believe you are up in Labrador, and Mark had the, book, uh, the launch right here in the city of St. John's not long ago. But, Morgan, let's start with you. Labradorians are proud people, and so to see a collection of their 120 years of cinematic history must have gone over gangbusters. Well, we think so. We hope so. Absolutely. We launched at the Big Land Film Festival, the inaugural festival in October, and we've been very pleased with the reception so far. Mark, how'd it go for you in town? Oh, it was great. Actually, Morgan was here. Uh, she was able to come on down for the release. We had it on Tuesday night over at uh, Bannerman Brewing, and the reception was fantastic, and it was great to see uh, a bunch of Labradorians and a bunch of folks that have made film and media in the region to come out and uh, and celebrate with us. I, I don't mean to get involved with what's in the book because I haven't seen it, but does it include any references to the pioneering film that was Nanook of the North? Uh, that's a good question, actually, Patty, because, as you know, uh, this year is the 100th anniversary of Nanook of the North. But Nanook was filmed just a little tiny bit west of Labrador. That uh, that film was made in Kujuak, in uh, what's Nunavik, in northern Quebec. Uh, so they've been having some celebrations over there. But the filmmaker, Robert Flaherty, actually spent a good deal of time in Labrador, too, not taking film. But uh, he took some fantastic photos of uh, folks up and down the coast before he made Nanook, and, uh, and a bunch of those photos actually are, are uh, they're at the Art Gallery of Ontario, interestingly enough, but those are those are fantastic visual records, but no, not, none of his film work in, in Labrador uh, survives that we know of. I was just curious, I know that's an American silent film, and it was actually selected as one of the 25 films by the Library of Congress to be preserved in the National Film Registry, which I find to be interesting. Okay, so there's some 88 uh, uh, curated collection of video and photographs. Some have never been seen before. Give us a sneak peek as to some of the things people will see when they take the opportunity to peruse Labrador cinema. 
Well, uh, what we did with the book is we decided to arrange it chronologically because I'm sure, as you know, Patty, like this, this stuff is just really not accessible to a wide audience. And not only not a wide audience, but just no Labradorians either. So what we decided to do was uh, take three representative films from each decade of filmmaking uh, in the region and by folks from the region and sort of lay it out in a way that people could get a sense of how film developed over time. So some of the earliest film that we actually start with wasn't even shot in the region, but it was film of Labradorians that were performing. Uh, there was a tradition of Inuit coming off of the North Coast. They would perform at ethnographic ex- um, exhibitions and World's Fairs. And some of those ended up in the Buffalo Pan American Exposition in 1901. And some of the earliest film, and certainly some of the first film of Labradorians, so we traced that film uh, right on uh, right on up. The first film I think that we have uh, that's taken in Labrador itself, uh, it's a still from an American guy who came out of Pittsburgh and he spent some time up on the coast. Uh, and he uh, he took about thirty thousand feet of film and did some talking lectures throughout the Northeast states in the uh, in the nineteen twenties. So we got a little. We only have one still of his film, but we get this great shot of Hopedale in one of his advertisements for his uh, for his talking lectures. Morgan, what's the blend between films that were done in Labrador about Labrador versus films that were done by Labradorians in the Big Land? Well, that's really where the chronology comes in, because that changes a lot over time. And one of the exciting things we found about the book was how the participation in Labrador cinema sort of changes decade by decade. So these days, um, once you get into the more recent decades, you have lots of, um, of new films by, by Labradorians. So originally, Labradorian involvement sort of early on, when the technology wasn't so accessible here, was primarily as subjects in the film, You know, it'd be either Labradorians or Labrador landscapes. Um, And then over time, you see greater and greater uh, agency and people moving behind the camera, people writing, writing for camera. Um, So really, you, you see you see all of the above in the book. I probably should have started with this, but what's the origin of the thought to put this collection together in Labrador cinema? What was the impetus to get this going? I'll give that to both of you. <laughs> well, I, well <laughs> yeah, you go ahead, Morgan. Okay. Well, uh, lo- locals in, in Goose Bay might remember we, we ran a film screening series here, a historical film, for about seven years between 2010 and 2017, sort of once every month or so during the academic year in partnership with the, uh, with the Labrador campus here, formerly the Labrador Institute. And then kind of after seven years, we realized we'd shown an awful lot of films. And uh, at the Labrador Research Forum um, here in town, we had a little session in which we asked attendees, you know, what what do you think we should do with this? Um, You know, we'd like it. We'd like this gathered knowledge and information, you know, and celebration to live on somehow. And the consensus seemed to be that there was appetite for a book. And uh, we spent the last five years since then putting it together. Same question for you, Mark. Well, yeah, I'll even go a step further back from Morgan because uh, our work to put together that screening series that we did in Goose Bay came out of uh, our collective work on a film archive um, at the Labrador campus, formerly um, Labrador Institute. Um, They are one of the single largest holders of film and media uh, that concerns the region, I think, that I've ever seen, uh, certainly larger than than many other archives. So uh, Morgan and I spent a couple of years uh, uh, collectively. Uh, I started in and then she joined afterwards, uh, digitizing uh, and ultimately describing and making some of that stuff accessible. So that's where the content came from. And that was kind of like our main entry point. 
into that. <clears throat> and as these things go, you know, once you start that work, you learn about more. So that we were able to flesh out history more. So it was a way for us to kind of put a nice, uh, it's a nice capstone thing for us coming out of that. But I think it's also too a great way to continue the dialogue around film and to promote this really fantastic tradition of filmmaking that I think very few people know about. So as a collection, this archival tome would be obviously very important, but what else do, would you want people to take away and to understand about Labrador cinema? Um, for me, I think that one of the things I want people to take away is the skill and precision and deftness of Labradorians at all phases in the development of their cinema. Um, there's a lot of film, and you'll see in the book, a lot of film is, you know, it's it's credit it as being produced by other people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the Labrador stories aren't on full display in many of these films. So I, one of the things that I love about looking at this history is just seeing how Labradorians have been able to tell their stories, uh, kind of in spite of the fact that, that people were controlling that media, and not only tell their stories in spite of that fact, but tell them in really creative and kind of beautiful ways. And then to see that now flourish into filmmaking you know, from people from the region, uh, it's just uh, it, it's a fantastic thing to look at, sort of develop over time. Would you like to add anything to that, to that Morgan? No, I, I mean, I think that's exactly it. There's nothing sort of more more exciting than screening a film or sharing the book and seeing people's faces light up with pride. You know, I think a, lo a lot of times people don't realize, you know, how rich um, the, the tradition is here of, of local um, creation in, in film. We're, we're familiar with a lot of the, the recent work, which has been fantastic, but there's actually, a, that, that work has deep roots and there's been a lot of, you know, artistic um, and aesthetic production in, in many fields in Labrador for so long, and film is no exception. One of the last films in the book, in the chronological order, would be about the Georges River Caribou. Is it a tale of woe and loss? We've seen some optimistic numbers with some rebounds, but at one time, the hills looked like they were alive with the movement of the caribou. So what's the tone or tenor of that particular film? Uh, so you're talking about uh, Heard by David Borsch, which uh, which is in on some streaming services right now, I think, that uh, that listeners can watch uh, free of charge. Um, the, the tone of that film is, uh, I, I would think, Probably inquisitive. Uh, I mean, certainly it takes the position and explores the idea that, the, you know, the not, like it's not a great moment for the caribou herd right now. But the film really talks about and explores the cultural relationship between uh, between folks living in Labrador and caribou. And I think it gives sort of a... Um, a good overview of uh, like, well, not not just that relationship, but how the herd has declined and what that has meant sort of culturally. So I think it's a, it's a complex story. I'm not certain that there's one sort of uh, a tone that comes out of it, but you know, there's a there's a lot of celebration of that relationship between people and caribou. Obviously, the uh, like the decline part isn't uh, isn't the best part of the story, but there's also some attention to how it is that people are, are dealing with that decline as well. I mean, the great thing about that film, too, is that David digs back into the archive, and you can also like get a pretty clear visual sense of, uh, as you said, Patty, like the scale of, of the, the size of that herd. I mean, he digs into some material from, uh, certainly from Land and Sea. Uh, there's some material produced by the provincial government. There's even some material that was produced by the government of Quebec. That uh, David incorporates into that film, and to look at that historic footage in there, it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it gives you a real sense of scale, and it gives you a real sense of scale over time. Morgan, we'll give you the final word before we say goodbye this morning. Well, I guess my final word would just be to encourage people to come out and and read the book, but also to watch the films. Um, there's a lot of different places. Mark mentioned some streaming services. 
Um, some of the films are available online. Um, some of them are available through the Labrador campus here, and some of them are available at other at other institutions. If you're interested in any of them, get in touch with us directly. Um, and I guess the last thing I should do would be to thank the Newfoundland and Labrador Film Development Corporation as well for all of their support throughout the project. Appreciate your time, both of you, this morning. Good luck with the book. Been a real pleasure. Thanks so much, Friday. And so just to put it in there, brackandbrine.com, if you want to get in touch with us, B-R-A-C-K-A-N-D-B-R-I-N-E.com. Go to that website, and, uh, and we're happy to field any questions and inquiries about the book. Thanks again, and happy holidays to you both. Thanks, Patty. Take your care. It's Mark Turner and Morgan Mills are the co-author of Labrador Cinema. And you mentioned Land and Sea. I just had the pleasure a couple of weeks ago of meeting Pauline Thornhill, longtime host of Land and Sea, for the very first time. I really do appreciate that program like many of you would. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Susan Walsh is the seniors advocate. She's in the queue, and then it's you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the province of seniors advocate. That's Susan Walsh. Good morning, Susan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to do it. Um, I wanted to just uh, reach out to all your listeners this morning, especially your listeners who are seniors, to let them know that um, you know we've been very busy these last few months, as you know, doing our public engagement sessions. We've had 16 throughout the province. We've heard from pushing upward now of 1,000 seniors who've come out and or replied to our survey. Um, the last piece of this engagement process is closing on Monday, which is the survey online. And so I just wanted to reach out to say if folks uh, can do the survey, it is online at seniorsadvocatenl.ca. That's our website, seniorsadvocatenl.ca. If they can't, they can certainly uh, reach out to my office and we'll, um, we'll do it online for them. Like they can give us the information and we'll fill it in. And uh, we're at uh, 729-6603 or if you're long distance, one eight three three seven two nine six six zero three. I know you'll probably repeat that for me later. Um, I know you have in the past. I really appreciate your support. And other piece of news that I wanted to share is in traveling the province. You know, we have a Twitter site. We've increased our. our uh, membership or our followers on that, but Twitter is not a big user for seniors. We know that. A lot of seniors use Facebook, so we have just gone live on a Facebook page for our office, um, and it's Seniors Advocate NL. So Seniors Advocate NL will get your Facebook page. On there will be the link to the survey. On there will be a new news leader, letter, sorry, our first newsletter that uh, as an office we uh, just decided, look, how are we going to get out to the public more? How are we going to be more accountable to seniors? That whole process around the engagement sessions was about accountability to seniors. So now the, the newsletter is a way to say, look, here's what the office is up to um, as well. So the Facebook page will get you the newsletter, but it'll also get you the link to the survey. So I just wanted to give that update in case there's seniors out there who are going, oh, yeah, I'd like to tell the advocate, uh, you know, what's on my mind or what's important to me. They still have time. And certainly they have time after the survey closes Monday night um, to, to talk to me. But it won't be the same as getting it into the survey to help um, because what we will do is take all of that and analyze it and roll it up from a data perspective so that we can say, this is how many seniors we heard from and here's the issues that are important to them. 
So, of course, inside the survey is an opportunity to collect the data to encourage changes or improvements in policy and what have you. What are some of the key focus areas that people will see when they take the time to uh, complete the survey? So they'll be asked around uh, issues related to cost of living, housing, um, health care, certainly, transportation. There'll be opportunities to say, you know, outside of those areas, here's also other things that are important to me. Here's what I'm struggling with. Here's Here's what I feel we need to be doing for seniors in this province. Yeah, and of course, important work that you're going to be able to achieve here. So in addition to that, you know, there's been a very recent requirement by the province for a statutory review of agencies like yours and the Child and Youth Advocate and the like. What does that include? What does that even mean? Well, you know... Patty, I've spent a long time, 32 years, working in the public uh, service of some way, shape, or form, and uh, done a lot of reviews of systems, programs, policies. I support it. I support the concept of reviewing and finding efficiencies where where possible. Um, You know, this is government money. I don't take lightly spending uh, money that the public is providing to government, and so I feel it's it's always important to review your services and determining is there a better way to do it? Can you be leaner? Those kind of things. So I'm I'm all about it. For me, uh, you know, we are a very small statutory office. There's only four of us, and when you look at our operating budget, we're a little over a hundred thousand dollars a year. So, like, I feel we're very lean, but I am really open to if others have suggestions on ways we can it can make that better. We reach out to approximately half the province. The average age in this province is 45 years, uh, 45.5, in fact. So, you know, we cover pretty much anyone 50 plus, certainly 65 plus everyone, but anyone who's receiving a senior service under 65 as well. So we have a huge mandate with a small office. Um, So, you know, I think we're doing it pretty leanly, but I'm always open to anywhere we can find efficiencies, for sure. And these statutory offices include yours, the Commissioner for Legislative Standards, the Chief Electoral Officer, uh, Child and Youth Advocate, Citizens Rep, Michael Harvey as the Privacy Commissioner, and your office, of course. Um, Do you speak much with these other offices? Because they all operate quasi-independent from government and answer to the House of Assembly. I'm just wondering if the thought amongst your colleagues in these uh, offices would think that government is responsive because some of them deal with very specific targeted cases. Some deal with the general policy like your office would regarding the province of seniors. Do you find in your short stay at this moment in time and through conversation with your colleagues that government is responsive to these offices because it's fine and it's excellent and it's appropriate to operate independently, but that also means that you're at the mercy of the House of Assembly? I can't speak for my my colleagues. I mean, I, I don't know what their experience is. I do know that, you know, I certainly uh, have connections with them on issues that are of relevance across the board. But for my office, I do find government is responsive. I mean, I came into this position six months ago. I immediately wrote the ministers to say, can you give me an update on where you are with the recommendations we've made to date? And they all responded. And, you know, when you look at the findings, I mean, they had half the recommendations basically um, in progress, many completed. So, you know, from my perspective, they are responsive. I think they see the value. I, I can, you know, I can only speak for my office. I mean, see Seniors are almost half this province. Seniors, um, you know, I believe, uh, require a voice. As I've gone out and done the consultations, I've heard, and it's unfortunate, I hear a lot of seniors say, we don't have a voice. No one's listening to us. And, I mean, I don't believe 
that that should be true. I, obviously, it's how they feel. But, uh, you know, seniors are half the province, and they they made up this province. I mean, they have earned a place where their voice should be heard. And so from my perspective, I feel there's a, a, a respect. Whenever I reach out to a minister or a minister reach out, reaches out to me or their department, their officials, there's a respect for... We are representing, and you know, the Office of the Seniors Advocate is representing a large pool of people in this province who shared their experiences, their needs, their their ideas. We do lots of research around seniors' issues. We're connected nationally, internationally. So I, I find there's a real respect in that, yes, they are listening. As they should. So if you would like to contact the Seniors Advocate's office and or to do the survey, you can just go to their website, which is seniorsadvocatenl.ca, and the phone numbers if you'd like to have more information. Uh, locally in the Metro Region, 729-6603, toll-free province-wide, 1-833-729-6603, or you can send them an email. It's an easy one, seniorsadvocate at seniorsadvocatenl.ca. Good to have you on, Susan. Thank you for the time. Or follow us on Facebook. Oh, that's right. Now you're on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Seniors Advocate NL. Thanks very much, Patty. I really appreciate it. Have a lovely Christmas. The very same to you and yours. And to your listeners. Thanks, Susan. Okay, bye-bye. Susan Walsh is the province's Seniors Advocate. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Christy. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's it going? Not too bad today. How about you? I'm waiting on a coffee for my manager, and I'll be better when I get it. (laughs) Coffee makes the world go around. It does, and I'm short on it today, so... Um, I'm just calling because yesterday they announced that they're looking at delaying um, the removing the exclusion for mental illness uh, on March 17th, which means people with the sole reason of mental illness um, could avail of medical assistance in dying. So they're looking at delaying that decision. And I was on here a couple of weeks ago um, talking about that. And while I do believe that's good, I think that, you know, there are a lot of people out there who thought who might have thought of it as a way to end their suffering, because when you have a mental illness, make no mistake, you can be suffering just as much as a physical illness. And I think we owe it to people in the community um, who are suffering with mental illness to make mental health care more accessible to them. So. Yes, this decision might go through, but now it's so important that they be able to access the mental health care that they need because then it's not fair otherwise. You know, they're suffering and it's not equitable here in Canada with the same for mental and physical um, illness, what treatment you can get. Of course. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I'm glad we're talking about this again because when we first started to hear stories, not only certain examples of how people have chosen and had approved by doctors medical assistance in dying, and it became stark reality that we're looking at ways to help you end your life versus looking at ways to offer the supports that you can indeed have and need and live a regularly normal, healthy life. So this conversation about mental illness really jumped off the page to me because I think it speaks to a couple of things. The lack of understanding about mental illness and the lack of understanding about access to care for mental illness. Because if that was ever even a thought that crossed the mind of legislators, then you have to wonder whether or not they understand those two distinctly different but all the same overlapped issues. I Yeah, and I have that question too because if you're making that kind of announcement, I think you need to be at the same time saying, 
we are going to work as hard as we can to get you the access to care you need. I mean, right now there is a petition and a website on the go. I don't know if people know about it called actformentalhealth.ca. And it's it's to petition the government to provide universal mental health care. And that's so important that we provide it now. And when they are making these decisions, they can't look at one without the other. And it feels like that's what they're doing, whether they're for or against it. And, you know, I'm not going to speak to made for people with disabilities much, but you have seen stories out there, people who aren't able to access housing that will um, be adequate for their disabilities. And people with mental illness need housing just as much. And that is a crisis. And you don't want people feeling like they can't access not only their mental health care, but housing as well. And so I think that we all have to step back and look at this and be like, we have to help people live with dignity. Um, we can't just say we're not going to allow you to die with dignity. We have to say we're going to help you live with dignity. hundred percent. This is a bit of a broad stroke question, but you know, it was welcomed that there was going to be a replacement facility built to replace the Waterford, and of course that's going to be on the health sciences complex. What's your hope for the new facility? Because bricks and mortar are important, but that doesn't change the tune for access, wait times, and just the way we think about and deliver mental health services. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Patty, because I'm actually a little concerned right now about something in particular when it comes to the new hospital, and that's that it's going to have so many less beds. I don't know the new number right now, but I believe it's around 40 less beds than the current Waterford. And I would love to know the the plans for long-term beds. I think that is something that we need to be discussing. There's people who need those beds. What is the plan for them if we have no new beds and no long-term beds in the new hospital? That is a huge question in my mind right now uh, that I hope the government announces very soon what the plan is because that's very concerning and you're right it's you yeah a new hospital is desperately needed but why less beds did towards recovery um make it they said that you know all the steps in towards recovery would make that possible was it successful we're still waiting on the towards recovery um final report and i'm kind of I'm hoping the government will come out and say, because it doesn't seem like there is a lot of answers to those questions around the hospital right now. Christy, and one more, this is a broad one too, and not everyone is as comfortable as you are with speaking about whether it be access to care and or your own personal circumstance. In general terms, how do, how should we be thinking about and talking about mental illness with someone who has indeed had a formal diagnosis? Do people want to talk about just in an effort to understand who you are, where you are, what's going on, or is it something that's left better provoked by the person themselves? I know with me and in my circles, uh, actually last night I was speaking to a friend who recently revealed that they have bipolar, and I just looked at them and said, how's your mental health? You know, when people have cancer, have diabetes, we it's so natural for us to say, how's your health? How's your treatment going? And I, first of all, like to check in with my friends. Are you okay if I ask you in a group of friends how your health is? And do you want me to check in or do you want me to leave you alone? I prefer when people ask me that because sometimes I don't want to talk about it. I'm 
exhausted. So I think during that little check-in of, are you okay if I ask questions? Um, and if, you know, if you're not, that might be a signal that maybe you should keep an eye on them, but not necessarily ask them. So I think that we need to normalize asking like it's a regular illness that we're, you know, comfortable asking people how their headache is. Mm-hmm. Well, does that make sense? It does, and I'm glad I asked, uh, given that response. Uh, it's always nice to have you on the show, Christy. Have yourself a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. Uh, thanks. Can I add one more thing, Patty? Yeah, sure you can. You just you just sparked that when I asked that friend um, about how their mental health was. They had said that they called 811 when they recently were in a bad position. And they are on a two, they were told in November that it would be a two year wait list to see a psychiatrist. They have bipolar, which means their family doctor doesn't want to deal with it. And when they called 811, they said, When was your last suicide attempt? And they gave a timeline. They said that was too far, too long ago, so you won't be on the highest priority. I think that speaks to the quality of access to mental health care in this province, and I wasn't planning to say it until right now, but we need to be fighting for people who need access to care desperately. So I just wanted to share that because we have such a long way to go. Thank you very much, Christy. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Patty. Have a great weekend. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. She's a great guest. Uh, Just a very quick note uh, on a side. So we've produced some amazing swimmers in the recent past in this country. You know, the Penny Alexiaks of the world and Maggie McNeil. So the World Aquatic Championships is being held right now in Melbourne, Australia. And Maggie McNeil just broke uh, the world record in the 50-meter backstroke. Fantastic. Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, the executive director of End Homelessness St. John's is Doug Pawson. He's next, then you. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the executive director at End Homelessness St. John's. That's Doug Pawson. Good morning, Doug. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good, thanks. Grand. I I just wanted to follow up on uh, your last caller, Christy. Um, She's she's a wonderful advocate for folks uh, uh, dealing with mental illness and and the the advocacy around long-term mental health. Uh, So I just wanted to to follow up and, and show her some support. And uh, she, she often challenges folks like me in the sector who uh, to, to be more vocal in our advocacy. So um, I appreciate her nudge uh, for, for that for me and for others in our, in our community. Um, I just wanted to follow up on a couple of points um, that, that she's made that I, I think are important to really to, to, to think about. And, and one of them was, you know, the new mental health facility. And I know Christy was asking about, you know, the plan for that. Um, I know that as a community member, there, we've been consulted around planning for that, but there really is a, a significant transition happening, and it's not just a physical move. It is it is a shift from sort of residential services and supports at the Waterford to less to a no residential uh, model, uh, which which can be both a good thing and a bad thing, but it does really require a pretty significant transition. So, if we're going to be moving folks from the Waterford um, you know, into the community, there does need to be significant investments into housing because housing is healthcare and healthcare is housing. And uh, there's going to need to be significant investments in that. And, and Christy is absolutely right to, to be asking for, for some clarity in, in the plans for that because that, that's a big shift for folks uh, in this community. And, and I would say that the current op- options for folks who might be transitioning are very limited, if, if even available. Um, just we just don't want people to end up being discharged from a Waterford facility 
into essentially emergency shelter. So, um, you know, that that's a really significant point that you made. And I wanted to follow up just to just to show that uh, that 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 is a concern that we, we're, we're seeing and we wanted to address as well. And just goes to show you some of the most important conversations are had at the pub. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Sorry, I had to get that in there. Doug, you know, we talk about affordable or appropriate housing, and it might be different for a single versus a family versus uh, seniors and uh, people with addictions or mental health uh, services required. So what does that look like? You know, what are the differences therein? Is it simply about additional supports outside the four walls of the home, or is it case managers that help you adjust to the new setting where you live? Or what does that actually mean, or what does it look like? Oh, it looks... It varies. It varies based on the individual and their need. Of course, um, you know the challenge. I think that that we're seeing, uh, you know, the work we're doing with the community organizations um, is just the complexity of needs. You know, it's really growing. Um, folks are under a lot of stress and pressure. Um, you know, housing is in the rental market, especially, is very tight and hard to come by. And folks with you know, um, any level of complexity uh, in limited income are going to be under, you know, pretty significant pressure to maintain their housing. And that that is is the result of a lack of supports, generally speaking. Um, but it, it does look different. So I would say, you know, the needs of a senior, and, and, and Susan was on earlier discussing some of those unique challenges, um, is going to look different from what a youth might need, uh, what, what a w- woman fleeing violence is going to need. And, and we're seeing across the board, and it's been in the media a lot, the strains that organizations are facing as they're trying to, you know, essentially do the work that that's, you know, not being funded elsewhere through government uh, action. And I think that's, you know, Christy's point is, you know, we need to see investments that are equitable across the board. And a lot of the, the issues that we're seeing are related to mental health and substance use. So those types of investments, you know, both institutionally and across the community uh, will be really important if we're going to if we're going to be able to support folks in their housing. You know, even just the approach we take to understanding the issues better is lax is laxed in my personal opinion because you know if we talk about interaction between the criminal justice system and uh, mental health and addictions related matters and or the healthcare system at large. I just think we're very much become reactionary, and I think that speaks to how government operates anyway, especially in the realm of healthcare. We don't really get down to understanding who you are, what you need, until after you present yourself, and all of a sudden, you're worse off and it costs more. Yeah, and that's exactly it. And I mean, we saw last week in the release of the Auditor General's report around the state of uh, uh, the corrections and, and how they're supporting um, offenders, both you know, in the institutional setting and then post. And it's it's no news for folks who work in a sector that there's often many times uh, people will be released um, out of HMP, for example, and they won't have an address to go to. There's no home for them to go to, and they they have to go to an emergency shelter. Uh, and that happens in hospitals too. But it, it you know it's a really significant piece because. What, where do folks go if they don't have a place to return to, right? So those sort of you know, institutional supports to make sure folks are released into, into a safe and secure setting with, with appropriate supports, it is lacking. And oftentimes that falls onto community groups. And, in, in, you know, it's, it's always a reaction for them to have to deal with. And it's never a preventative component. And, you know, so, so seeing those reports, you know, they're appalling to read and, and to, to see, but it's, you know, it's no surprise. It's just disappointment, really, that we're not we're not supporting folks as they're exiting these institutions when they when they're most vulnerable and need those supports. 
and there's an overtone of uh, public safety that people should consider because we're not just talking about turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to people who have run amok or run afoul of the law. This impacts the entirety of the community, so we should always put that in perspective. And the most, the two most expensive things in this country are night in hospital or night in prison. Avoiding both is probably in all of our best interests, with societal responsibility and financially. I'm really pleased to know that John Howard Society is picking up for the Canadian Mental Health Association is being is leaving off in January regarding their case management for people who are being released from prison, because again that program has had real impact. 67% of the people served didn't re, didn't. Re offend were never reincarcerated. Those are things we need to mimic and build on. Doug, before I get to the news, final thoughts and words come uh, for you. Yeah, just um, you're absolutely right. Those are the biggest costs for for the public to incur. And when somebody leaves, um, you know, an institution, whether it's a hospital or or, or a prison, and they have no place to go, it's really easy to reoffend just to get back into a place where you're going to be warm and, and you'll have uh, meals provided for you. It's it's, it's, it's survival instinct. You're going to do what you have to do to, to survive and stay warm. And as we're entering the cold weather and we've seen crime rates increase in St. John's, uh, if there's no more investments into these types of solutions, I wouldn't expect any less uh, crime uh, you know, through the winter. And it's really the result of a lack of investments in those institutions across the board. Doug, good to have you on the show. Have a nice weekend and happy holidays to yours. Thanks, Perry. Happy holidays as well. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. As Doug Pawson, he's the executive director at End Homelessness St. John's. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Bill wants to talk about the provincial government and what capacity we'll find out. Then Muskrat Falls is on the agenda, and then whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Bill. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hang on. I'm just getting out of the roof. Uh, how you doing? I'm doing okay. How you doing? Best going. That nice lady you were just talking to a minute ago proved something I already knew. You, you as always, are above average, and I'm exactly that, average. I'm pretty much right in the middle myself, I would imagine. Do you, do you, know, do you know what I'm referring to? Uh, not particularly. She said, she said the average age in the province is 46 and a half. Oh, I'm above average. <laughs> I am so. Yes, sir. 53. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I just, just want to call. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question. Now we might have a, a, an argument or an agreement. I'm not sure. Uh, what, do, what, what do we even need the government for? Well, what would how would we administer public spending, public policy without 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 a government? Good people learns to keep and uh, and make sure everything works all on their own. We've done it throughout history. I'm, uh, and Jen, I'll, 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 I will clarify by saying I'm just sick and tired of them. I, you know, you, you look at your tax bill every year and blah, blah, blah. But like, we don't need them. Don't even need them. Get out. Go. Well, many people can, you know, they'll say, they'll think that government is 40 elected members when government is a big behemoth of thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of people making things work. Now, there's a question as to whether or not... not uh, ma- making things work is a debatable point. Well, that's what I was going to say, is whether or not that's efficient or productive is certainly a fair question to be asking. But I don't know how you administer, you know, even something as fundamental as harvesting taxes and putting them wherever it's going to be spent the following year. So I don't really know how anything functions without some form of a government. I There's lots of places in the world that, function just without it uh, and uh, I'll, I'll admit freely I'm an anarchist uh, and anarchy works but it, it, not on a big scale uh, no. wherever, you, wherever you live 
you earn your keep. You work your. Uh, uh, before when we close, if you remind me, I, I want to mention something about uh, the, the language barrier on the on the show. But that's a side note. Uh, yeah, I don't think we need them. I don't think we need them. Get, get out, get out of our building that we're paying all kinds of money for. Uh, these roads, I can make these roads work, but not I as an individual, but in a group, in a small little area. Uh, with, uh, I, I do stuff, trade and barter. You know, it, it, t- tell me why that's not the better system. What do I trade for a road work? Uh, so Patty, Patty's a, 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 an intellectual who studies. Patty gets information. Patty, uh, the, the fellow down the road, uh, got six cows and uh, and grows vegetables. When he needs to learn something about something, Patty finds him information. Patty gets beef and, and vegetables. And uh, the, the roads are, are there. There's a fellow that's really good uh, at mixing tar and loves hot work and He'll look after your road. Doesn't he want to get paid? Um, no, I didn't want to go that deep. But uh, paid for what? What's paid? Paid is money to be able to afford and to make payments on their equipment and to pay their staff and the like. Yeah, and that's under the current system we have. I, I, I actually dream about a different system. I dream of lots of stuff, uh, <laughs> genie being one. Before we run out of time, you want to talk about a language barrier? What did that mean? Oh, I, I, I'll tell you, that because uh, sometimes when you're having uh, healthy debates, a single word can sidetrack it. Like, you'd hang up on me if now if I, if I, if I got frustrated and said a word. Uh, but uh, there, there, there's places, uh, uh, the guy with tricks will say, uh, it, 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 it might be in the middle of a great, wonderful point, and because he stuck a word in there, uh, his whole debate went away. Uh, uh, I want to show that in there. But I, I want to stick to the government thing. Like, But just r- very quickly on that, this is a regulated industry, right? Like, So the direction that is given from on high to the producer, for instance, is that if someone drops an F-bomb, we've got to drop the call. Like, it doesn't yeah. necessarily ruffle my feathers. It doesn't shock my sensibilities. No, but I, there's I a listening audience that we have to consider. But there's, there's, there's also the discriminate that nice mental health lady that uh, proved you were above average and I was exactly that. Uh, same thing. It's like it, it, that could be a discrimination case. It's like he dropped an F bomb and he's uh, fun, uh, uh, literally diagnosed with threats. You now discriminated discriminated against that human. No, I don't think that's how it could ever be handled if it came to a formal complaint process. But uh, anyway, final thoughts on the provincial government before we go, Bill? I justify why we need them. Well, I already asked you questions about, you know, the role they perform and how that can be replaced by anything, including trade and barter or, or anything under the sun. I mean, it's not the best form of government, but, you know, democracy is messy, and the Westminster parliamentarian system is as good as the democratic setups that are out there, so I don't know how you replace it, that's all. You're you're surmising Winston Churchill there now. Uh, But, uh, no, No. and I get, I I was just, uh, Patty, I'm walking around the backyard, and you you provoke a lot of thought in uh, all the conversations you had, and I, I just picked this one, and fundamentally... I don't believe we need them. It's, it's time for it's like go away. 
leave us alone. We, we can look after ourselves. And fundamentally, throughout human history, the good, hard-working people have always just got away from the, the, the cycle fence who uh, want to control power. And we've ran out of space on this planet. And we're, we're at that place, I believe. Maybe, you know, that, that's just my thought. I just wanted to rant with you today. Rants are always welcome. Appreciate the time, Bill. Thanks a lot. Have a great one. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Uh, we got a bunch we're going to try to get. Oh, we're going to 7 right away? All right. Uh, line 7. Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Uh, yes, good morning, Patty. Thank you to you and David, uh, your producer, for taking my call on VOCM. And I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas. And to the listening public, Merry Christmas to everyone, because I probably won't be calling in now. It's getting close to Christmas anymore. Uh, so, Penny, I, I was listening to the gentleman, Desmond, on there talking this morning about the, the financial stay, uh, state that uh, Muskrat Falls has seen and what it have cost the, the province, like $15 billion. Uh, Like, I've been listening to this for the last 10 years, and I, we chat about it a lot in, in, in conversations with the, with the public, because I'm chatting with a lot of people. Uh we, we, like, we, I, I do believe that the hydro project itself and the general public do believe the hydro project itself was a good idea because both of our governments, provincial and federal, are preaching we should go green. And hydro projects been on the go for years, including Church of Falls, of course, since the 60s, and it's been a huge success. But the way it was financed on the back of the taxpayers was terrible, of course, and we're paying the price. And according to Desmond, it's, it's, it's a very sad, uh, you know, picture. So, uh, but, like, I, I'm wondering, and the public is wondering that I'm talking to, why did it have to turn out to be such a disaster? Because they they must have had some idea what they were going to produce there, the amount of power. So, uh, like, there's audio projects all over the world, like I said. So why didn't they know what they needed there in the way of power source, like like the equipment? Uh, I'm not an a, a electrical engineer, but I am a linesman. I've got some ideas. Uh, but, uh, you know, so why did we have to have all these problems in the plant that we have had for the last 10 years to try to get it up and running? Why... Did we have to put in a power line that couldn't carry the 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 power source from what we're hearing now? She's going out last couple of times. They tried went out, like you know whether to Soldiers Pond or wherever, and they must know the gauge of the line. Now I'm talking from a layman perspective. They must know the gauge of the line that they would need to carry that amount of power. They must know what they need in the power uh, stations to carry that much power. Something has gone wrong. For 10 years, we've been having nothing but problems with this, uh, with this project. And there's, like, yes, uh, it, it's cost the taxpayers billions, and, and it's, a t- it's a disaster. But the audio project itself should have went through, and they should have known, the engineers should have known what they needed to get this project as a plus. What do you think, Patty? Well, it's a pretty massive question. Uh They can flow the power over the power lines once they get it across the strait. The problem is getting it across the strait. That's where the major problem is. And then for grid stability, uh, my understanding of how those synchronous condensers work and what they mean for grid stability, those are the two key problems. We can flow the power down through the long-range mountains if we can get it across. The the problem is, you say, getting across the straits and in the sub-cable? Yeah. Okay, so why didn't the engineers know know what 
uh, how big a uh, sub cable and what gauge they would need to carry what they were going to produce. But that's not the issue. The issue is how the software regulates the flow of the power across the Labrador Island, like not the gauge or the thickness of wire or the ability for it to carry it. It's the software that governs it. That's where the problem is. Again, the power well, engineer should know. I, but I can't answer that question, Eugene. How could I possibly answer that? The power engineer should know. The only way that I can look at it, and and a lot of the general public can look at it, we are big in this province on make-work projects. You know that. I know that. People work on them all the time. It's the biggest make-work project in the province, and I would say probably in the country. And I tell you, they have put a lot of dollars back into the economy of the province. And I tell you, a lot of my friends have made a living there for the last 10 years. So I guess if there's any such thing as a positive way to look at it, that's the way I look at it. It's hard to turn that into positive. I get the point, but make-work projects were backstops, and we can't be looking at $15 billion as a backstop job. But I appreciate this, Eugene, and if we don't speak again, wish you and your family nothing but the best over the holidays. Yes, and Patty, and same to you and, and yours and to VOCM and to everyone out there. Merry Christmas. Same to you. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's see. Uh, I can't remember exactly who David said we're going to next, but Vic is there to talk about nuclear fusion. Now, of course, pretty big, massive topic. There has been a significant breakthrough uh, in the recent past. What that means for baby steps towards clean energy, it's anyone's bet. And then Alan wants to talk about Bill C-21. That's gun control legislation. And then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two. Good morning, Vic. You're on the air. Morning, Patty, and your listening audience. Good morning Thank to you. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. Uh, nuclear fusion. I, I know I read that uh, about nuclear fusion about 40 years ago. Uh, it would nuclear fusion would uh, will provide clean energy to all the world when it's harvested properly. So I understand. I think last week we had a. a, a Publication by the by Canada, BC University, I believe area. Yeah, it was in California. California was it? And uh, didn't BC have one also? Well, the uh, well, the one notable breakthrough was from a university in the United States, where for the very first time ever, the attempt to replicate how the sun generates its energy was achieved with net energy gain in nuclear right. fusion. Now, Not I understand, the but the first one I, I viewed on television is the one I think from BC, where there. Uh, uh, they're using, I think, uh, pressure, uh, uh, whereas the, uh, the states one, I think, are using uh, 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 what, uh, a, what's what they're using? The, the um, mm-hmm. I can't remember right now, uh, but they're using different, a different uh, system, a different approach to uh, uh, actually extract or the energy. But uh, I guess my question is now. Uh, how will, I guess, nuclear fusion, uh, I understand they could have it up and going maybe in the in early 30s, 2030. Now, I guess the question is, I understand that I heard you this morning talking about, uh, the, I guess, our energy here in Newfoundland, Muscat Falls, etc. And I, I'm wondering now how this nuclear fusion will actually impact uh, on our, on, uh, our uh, I guess, the hydro uh, the hydro uh, plan to have there uh, in the port port plant. Sorry, what's the also also? But they're they're different things though, right? If they harness fu- fu- uh, nuclear fusion, then obviously those uh, things could be obsolete. You know that this, uh, that uh, type of energy we're producing by even Churchill Falls, 
a nuclear fusion would, uh, would eliminate all, all this. Uh, yeah, well, I, I would imagine we're a long, long way from that. They've been uh, trying to well, do this. I oh, mentioned go ahead, Vic. However, that's another issue. Uh, the other thing now I thought I mentioned was I see in uh, yesterday's paper uh, uh, an article there, someone complaining about the uh, attention uh, I think uh, our government was given to the uh, new immigrants, I think. And uh, I think he pointed out uh, the minister in particular. Uh, I think he indicated that uh, uh, looking back, I think in 1992 we had a fishery closure, and I think 30,000 jobs went uh, by the wayside here in Newfoundland. And he thought there was, you know, they just ignored the the, uh, the fishery and not giving attention probably where it should be. Uh, but uh, after reading that, of course, I remember reading this gentleman. I think wrote a book a few years, many years ago. I think it was. Uh, He's quite knowledgeable on fishery. And it seems like now, from what I understand and what I can see, uh, of course, the federal government has jurisdiction over our fishery. Uh, and I think they were looking, I know years ago, I think they wanted, uh, they wanted uh, Canada wanted uh, the northern tail of the Grand Banks, I think, in the Flemish Cap, uh, I think, including our 200-mile uh, offshore uh, jurisdiction. Uh, we ne- I don't think Canada ever got that, I want to understand. And I think uh, they were pointing out, I think, as uh, just jumped in his book, that um, uh, I think most of the spawning of the cod are in, do- are in those areas, actually, and uh, actually in those, uh, and our, tra- our draggers and trawlers, I think, uh, are really destroying that area. And I think there's overfishing in, in, in also in those foreign allocations. Uh, so that that's sort of another point. Uh, that's sort of you know, unless the federal government and of course the uh, province, uh, I guess uh, I'm, I'm of course I'm, 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 I always I think advocated that. Uh, I think the fishery, uh, our fishery here in Newfoundland, of course, I know pertaining to our terms of, uh, I guess, cooperation with Canada should be looked at. Uh, you know, uh, joint management. Uh, I, uh, should be more, I think, appropriate here. The other thing is, I see uh, a, a, a news there not long ago, a story, I think a fisherman up in uh, uh, Flowers Cove somewhere, I think. He, he, he because of the, um, the, I think the reduced quota and uh, shrimp, I think his business, he had, I think he has now, said he couldn't make ends meet, so I think he's selling his, uh, his, uh, his, uh, his, uh, his fishing boat, etc., and I think his son went okay. had to get a job somewhere else to make ends meet. So obviously that's quite a sad. So I thought too that uh, wouldn't uh, would uh, final thought efficient wouldn't efficient with a large uh, enterprise like that have insurance to cover his losses? Losses so associated with reduced. Okay, Vic. Well, All right. I don't know the answer to that question, but I appreciate the time. Okay. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye now. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, I don't know if you can have uh, insurance. Are, could you insure losses incurred because of reduction in quota? That would be a pretty tricky policy to craft, I would imagine. Uh, but the issues surrounding nuclear fusion as to whether or not that's going to make solar, wind, hydro, uh, hydrogen, natural gas or anything obsolete, in the near term, hard to imagine that they go from this first-ever minor breakthrough for net energy gain, replicating the energy that the sun creates, to some sort of 
magical smashing hydrogen atoms together with combined heat to come up with energy. Of course, no greenhouse gas emissions, no radioactive waste like you would experience inside of nuclear fission versus nuclear fusion. Okay, not to pretend I know anything about it. Let's take a break. I'm time for the news. Alan, appreciate your patience there, sir. You want to talk about Bill C-21, and when we come back, we'll be speaking with him and then you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Now, let's go to line number four. Say good morning to Alan. Alan, you're on the air. Uh, yes, I have a... Well, is that really? I'm just curious. I am. I have an SHP for... I'm, I'm a hunter and stuff, so I mean, I have hunting rifles, but I, my my FAC, I, t- I went out beyond the point. I have a restricted and non-restricted one. So the non-restricted is my hunting rifle, and I'm assuming the restricted would be for the handguns and things. But I'm just wondering, it took me a long time. I only got renewed again now in September of this year. And <laughs> it's kind of funny that right after I got it renewed, I find out that, well, you can't, usually buy a handgun anyway so why like am i will i be entitled to a credit or something or what is the government's plan with that that's a good question i don't know the answer that's the short answer for me i really have no idea what sort of compensation might be afforded to you in that circumstance but it's a good question and you know there's a lot of questions surrounding this bill that are looming large now Apparently, the government are revisiting some of it because a lot of it just doesn't make sense. And as I've admitted, I don't own a firearm, so I don't know much about it. But I have spoken to plenty of my buddies who are hunters. They understand the ramifications of the bill. You know, some firearms that do the exact same thing, one is banned, one is not, that doesn't make any sense. But your question surrounding compensation for a recent purchase, I'll be surprised if there's any such thing, but I don't know the answer definitively. No, but I mean, it's... Like it's quite a, it's quite more expensive to have like a, reg, a registered uh, FAC. I mean, it's like twenty or thirty dollars more to have that. And then, I mean, as soon as you get it, they go and oh well, I'm banning all handguns. And I mean, I don't own handguns. I love shooting them. I have on many occasions got handguns, or even tactical rifles, which I get laughed because everybody calls them assault rifles. They're not. They're tactical weapons. And like, all this doing is just law-abiding citizens all this, because I mean, someone's going to break into my house. They're not going to care if they're hanging on registered or not. So I'm just wondering, like, what would your opinion be? Like, would people have a right to get that money back? Well, I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't even know. We can't even figure out whether or not there's going to be a formal compensation package afforded to people who do find their firearm on the eventual banned list for some sort of buyback. There's been price tags attached to it, but how it's going to work, I don't think anybody knows. Uh, and until it's passed and we have an opportunity to speak, but for instance, I'd love to have Marco Mendocino on this program to answer some questions. He doesn't seem very good at it, but... It'd be great to be able to get some of your questions posed to the minister responsible because I don't know the answer, Alan. I just do not. Okay, no, I'm just curious. Like maybe you would know more about it than I do. Well, I don't think anybody knows at this po- uh, moment in time, which is why we really need the public safety minister, 
who is largely responsible for this uh, piece of legislation to answer some of these questions because they're absolutely valid. And, you know, maybe a better understanding about the thought process that went into creating the banned list, period. And remember, when the first 1,500 uh, firearms were added to the so-called banned list, unbeknownst to people, there were more and more added, and no one was told about it. So people could have been uh, uh, dealt with by the police, charged, and convicted of something they didn't even know was a crime because the firearm that they had, they didn't see it added to any list. It only came out in dribs and drabs what the additions were, so there's lots of unknowns there. And we would love to have Marco Mendocino, the public safety minister, on this program and ask questions just like yours. Well, I mean, probably just a warning for anybody. I mean, uh, like I said, I mean, if if what the FAC for an unregistered firearm or unrestricted firearm, I should say, if there is no such thing, then I think the firearms group or whatever should simply say, no, sir, you can't have that because there's no thing anymore. Fair enough. I mean, even the Federation of Police Chiefs don't think that this is going to achieve the uh, uh, the intended outcome of increasing public safety, but we'll see what kind of follow-up we can get on your behalf and other gun owners or firearm owners here in the province, of which there are many. Okay, thank you very much, sir, for your time. I appreciate yours, Alan. All the best. All the best. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number six. Barbara, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No um, I have a and a little preamble there. My dad, he's 88, and we lost my mom about a month ago. So he's, you know, hasn't, you know, hasn't been, you know, laughing or had a chance to smile or laugh lately. So I want to send a huge bouquet out to the anarchist who called because I haven't seen my father laugh in almost two months. And I'm sitting around driving with him here now. We've had a good chuckle. It was a, it was a, it was a great call, but um, uh, differences of opinions, but I just—he he was really good humored. You were really good humored. So, and my dad got a huge kick out of it. He, the first time I've seen him laugh in in, in months. So, um, well, thank you, thank thank you for that call. Um, so, I guess the question that I had was, um, and I don't know if Dave can uh, figure that out or not. Um, activities for senior men who are, you know, living alone um, that aren't really um, necessarily like. Uh, you know, like a, a day program or, uh, you know, friendly visiting, that sort of thing. Um, just wondering if there's anything, you know, of that nature that's out there for men that's, you know, meaningful as opposed to just kind of sitting around and, um, you know, just kind of whittling the day away. Um, yeah, I didn't know if there's anything like if the pensioners had anything available. I didn't know if, um, you know, like the Columbus did anything, um, you know, on a weekly basis or those sorts of things. So I didn't know if David or any other community members had any suggestions, things that I could do with my dad um, that are, are, are meaningful activities. So, um, like I said, I don't anticipate you're going to have the answer there handy, but just kind of a message to throw out there to any social enterprises or any community groups who might have some suggestions, because um, the days are pretty long for my dad now, and uh, we try to keep him occupied. We're just trying to figure out um, some new things to do. First off, uh, I'm glad your dad had the opportunity to uh, have a, a chuckle today. And certainly my deepest condolences to your family for your loss. The hub of information that you're looking for, and I, I put people out of this organization all the time because they've got their finger on the pulse of the seniors' activities and programs and policies, and that's Seniors NL. They're a terrific yeah. group. Have you talk, uh, talked with them about what might be out there for your dad? 
No, I haven't spoken to them yet. Um, uh, no, to be honest, I haven't, and I probably should have. Um, I, I know of the day programs and things like that. Didn't know there's anything like at Palmer. Like, I'm not suggesting, you know, a game of darts for my dad at 88 years old or something. I think everyone's uh, safe to be taken into their hands. But, yeah, just something meaningful. And, and maybe even, you know, I think there's a real lack for services for men specifically. I think there's a lot of activities for for women and for senior women, but I do find that um, you know senior men kind of get lost in the lost in the shuffle because they're a little bit more you know independent, or we have that you know assumption that they're more independent. So um, not as many services what I found available for for men specifically um, uh, that are that are out there. But no, I should contact them. You're right, I haven't, I haven't done that yet. What kind of stuff does your father like to have? You know what? Also, I'm a little bit surprised that there's a uh, disparity between uh, opportunities and programs for women versus men. I didn't know that. I think that's the first time I've heard that. So what kind of stuff does your dad like to do? Well, he loves the game of crib. He loves watching, you know, a football game, a hockey game, soccer game. Um, You know, talking. he grew up in St. John's, you know, county through and through. Um, Those sorts of things. Just, you know, your stereotypical... um, 80, like I said, 88 years old, loves the game of crib, loves um, just having a laugh, that sort of thing. And, you know, he goes to mass and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, even just connecting with, you know, men who would probably be of that same vintage, you know, uh, grew up in St. John's, just to have that commonality or things to reminisce about, right? And that's uh, probably specific to his era and where, where he grew up. Yeah, I, I can understand that. Yeah. I, I do know that uh, a couple of our family friends of mine, uh, regarding soccer, of course, with the World Cup wrapping up this weekend, both the Croatia-Morocco match and France and Argentina, there's a watch party at the Trinity Pub, and a couple of my buddies who oh. are in their mid-80s are going. So oh, I'll just throw that out. You know, to watch the game with the crowd might be a bit of excitement for them to get yeah. out of the house. Uh, yeah, yeah. But seniors and L, they might be able to point you in the exact right direction. I know there's every now and then there's a couple of crib tournaments that come by my email inbox. And I've never participated, even though I love a game of crib personally, and I play yeah. a lot with my sons. So yeah. contact Seniors NL. It's a really easy one. I've got the number if you'd like it. Okay, no, I can get it. Yeah, I can just hop on. You can put it out there for anyone else, so if anyone else is listening, someone yeah. might be thinking. Yeah. So through Seniors NL, they have a bunch of different resources and publications they produce, uh, whether you be a senior or a family or a friend of a senior or a service provider, if you want to volunteer or you want to make a donation. So the website is really quite simple. It's seniorsnl.ca. The email address is also quite simple. It's info at seniorsnl.ca. And their toll-free number for anyone in the province is one 800 563-5599. Okay, that's perfect. Um, yeah, so just like I said, I just wanted to, you know, if there's anyone out there, any people, I know loads of people who are looking to do something good for the communities and things like that, looking for some ideas, and that could be one of them, that if someone had some time to, you know, think of maybe some, you know, not not to exclude women, but just to have some, maybe some activities geared towards what perhaps men of my, like I said, of my dad's vintage might uh, might enjoy um, probably a neat, uh, uh, you know, a neat idea. Maybe someone can look into starting. Maybe I should be starting it, but <laughs> maybe and that's another time. Someone just called and spoke with Dave Williams and said that the Knights of Columbus actually host uh, crib games, so maybe give them oh, a call, too. Excellent. That'll be my next call. <laughs> Terrific. Uh, wish your dad well okay. for me, and thanks for your I time, will. Barbara. Thanks a lot, Patty. Talk Take care. To okay. All right. Bye-bye. 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 Yeah, sorry to hear about the family loss, and yeah, you I mean looking for things to occupy your day? 
And I know a lot of people. I mean, that's one of the go-tos is to get together for a game of cards. And lots of plus 50 clubs and seniors clubs, they do exactly that. And maybe a watch opportunity for people of all ages, uh, men and women, for this weekend's upcoming consolation final in the World Cup. And, of course, the big game, France and Argentina on Sunday. Looking forward to both, have to say. All right, final break of the morning, final break of the week. When we come back, Dave's right there. He wants to talk about the fishery. Then we're going to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Dave. You're on the air. How's you going, Paddy? Grand. How about you? I'm doing pretty good for an older person. Good. Listen, uh, i got to talk about the fishery for a minute here. I worked with Fishery Products International for 14 years as supervisor. And we wonder what happened to our codfish. Well, I tell you, the, 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 the Cayman fishery was a destroyed arquette fishery. Every year we would be in the Cayman, six weeks. Cayman would go to the line, they'd let the, pick out the males, put them in the chute, and let them go on out to the hopper. Now, beside each table, there was a container that weighed anywhere from 1,800 to 2,000 pounds. 99% of the cod was in there that was dumped into that was codfish. From anywhere from five, six, seven, eight inches, people off the street would come in and pick out the big ones to salt in. Now, you just stop and think about this. That's, you're talking about 2,000 pounds in one of those. We would dump that after 10-hour day, every day. Now, we had another ship that came on and done the same thing. Now, think about the plants right around this island. That was at that Cape racket because it was Japanese coming out of our woodwork everywhere for Cape But look at what we were destroying to get those Cape Thousands and thousands of tons of, of codfish. And and you had some fishermen believing that uh, they didn't come to nothing. I mean, you take a five-inch fish, six-inch, seven-inch fish, they're growing. Now, that's on the land. Out in the sea, when they pull up their seines... They, 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 they have just as many cards they would keep and they're little floating away from their nets. Thousands of tons of fish being destroyed. And we destroyed our fish back in the 70s and 80s, early 80s. I know, I've seen it. And you've got somebody out there right now who's listening to what I'm saying. Do you phone in and tell you the exact thing? Now, you think about the plants around this island. Every second community had a plant. So, so think about the, how, many, how many fish was destroyed. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and that, the advent of the different types of gear being used, and That's then the right, factory exactly. freezer trawlers and the yeah. draggers, I mean, exactly. it all contributes. But, I mean, most of the fishermen, most people blamed it on the trawlers and the, the, the seals. And, well, we were the biggest destroyers of all, the people in, in this province. And the fisheries knew this, the government knew this, but they didn't care as long as that revenue was coming in from those cablemen. You didn't care how many fish they destroyed. I mean, you, you, if you only was to sit down now and say, okay, there was a plant here in Trinity Bay, another one there, another one there, right around the island, they were doing this. So think about the fish that was destroyed. I mean, it was, it was remarkable what you're, what you're looking at, right? And, and I, 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 I couldn't understand the Department of Fishery should have seen this stuff. And, and at the time, codfish was a nuisance during Cape Lassie. They didn't care about the cod. They didn't care about nutty. And, and they let those cod be destroyed for the means of cabling. And that's what happened to our fishery. I can guarantee you that. I've worked there for, for 14 years, and I experienced that for every every day. The forklift would come in and take those gray containers full, 99% was cod, and dump in their hoppers. And that, that was only happening in one plant. That was happening in all the plants right around the island. 
So you talk about the fish that were, was destroyed. It was a hell of a lot of fish, I tell you. And some of them were pretty big fish, too. You know? But that's what I had to say anyways. Well, I'm glad you called, Dave. I think there's, you know, it's not wrong to point to all the different contributing factors that have led to the demise, whether it be the cod stocks or yeah. some of the other stocks that have found themselves in peril. It's been a combination of the gear and the rigs and us right. and foreign fishing and the allocation of quotas and, you yeah. know, the lack of science in the recent yeah. years. So they all play a role. Yes, exactly. But, I mean, like I said, we, 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 our fish disappeared, I know, at that time in the early 70s and, and, and late, say, early 80s. That's, we would have six weeks of caping season, and this was happening every day for, for six weeks. I'm one, we in one plant, so you know, all the plants was the same. So, if, like I said, I bet you if I could sit down and point out where all these plants were still and see how much they dumped, I bet you you'll get into millions and thousands of tons of codfish dumped. No doubt about it. Yeah. And, and we wonder what happened to our cod back in them days, right? Now it's slowly starting to come back, but it's, it's going to take a while, you know. But uh, but that's what happened to our codfish. It wasn't foreign draggers and it wasn't seals. It wasn't none of that because now I say that, you know, seals do destroy a lot of fish. I know that they got to eat every day. But uh, that was a, that was the big thing that destroyed our cod. Those those caping those caping season. That's what done it. And today, today they're doing the same thing. They're still at the cable, and 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 you was a good a cable five inches long will chase cable. They'll, any size fish will, will chase cable because it, that's that's their natural food. No matter how big he is, he'll still chase the cable. And there's just so many sometimes just so many fish in that cable as this cable. And the fishermen, like I said, they would just roll them out over their boats and let them float away, tails in, the, in, in floating in the bay. And that's that's out on the water, but in the, in on the land was worse than that, you know. But that's my thoughts of it, and I I know I worked there, and if anybody, like I said, is out there listening and worked there at that time, could phone you and tell you the exact same thing I'm saying. I appreciate you making time for the show, Dave. Thanks a lot. No problem, buddy. I I, I listen to your show, but I I don't call very often, but I do listen to it. I'm glad you listened. I'm glad you called today. All right, buddy. Have a Merry Christmas. Same to you, Dave. Yeah. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, final word of the week goes to line number three. Sean, you're on the air. Good afternoon. I guess it's almost afternoon. Almost. Listen, compliments of the season to you and all your listeners. Uh, Hope everyone's doing well. Same Uh, to you. Thank you. Wonderful thing happened yesterday, uh, and and it's frustrating when you come out of a store and you see the the kettle there for the Salvation Army, and you don't have any cash. All you got is your Visa or whatever you got or debit card. And yesterday, I just want everyone to know now: don't just pass by the kettle anymore coming out of Costco. I don't know where else they have them uh, with this special un- unit attached to the kettle or the side of it. And you could just uh, uh, glaze, uh, just slide your your uh, your card over it and ding and you know and you've just given them ten dollars or twenty dollars or five dollars whatever you want and it has four or five different options on how much that you want to donate to the Salvation Army so it's a fabulous thing it takes the cash out of the equation finally when so many people always say God I wish I had some cash to put in that right now you know yeah they brought that to bear last year and of course they had to because so few people actually have cash on hand these days. I don't mind having a, b- a few bucks in my pocket. I just prefer it. But, yes, the ability to tap your debit card or your credit card with an assigned amount to make a donation, I'm sure it's made a big difference for the Salvation Army and their, their ability to fundraise. 
Well, I really didn't know about it. Like, I hadn't seen it last year. I was at a few dollars, but, but yesterday I didn't. And I and I saw her, look, I wish I had some cash to put in it again today. But she said, don't worry about it. We've got this new thing now. From, anyway, so you just, just glance your card over. So don't pass by anymore, just assuming that you can only put cash in that little little uh, container they have. You the know? kettle. Uh, the kettle, sorry, the kettle, yeah. And, uh, yeah, by all means. And plus, people will give more money then. Like, they might give it $20 when they probably wouldn't take the last 20 out of their pocket and put it in there ordinarily. Well, well, they probably will. But I just thought I'd let you know that and all your listeners in case they were like me and I hadn't known it. Well, the message is out there now. I know it's an important season. There's a news story today about the Salvation Army and their they're uh, building down here in downtown St. John's, the spike they've seen in the number of families looking for a Christmas hamper, just like everywhere else. The Single Parent Association or the other food banks, Community Food Sharing, Salvation Army, they're all in the exact same predicament. And it's, it's really quite sad, but I'm glad there's people out there trying to fill those gaps. Sean, appreciate the time. You've had the last word. It's the most important time of the year. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Take care. All right, bye-bye. All right, a uh, quick check-in on the Twitter feed. We're a VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline.vocm.com. But we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.